Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Thursday morning, September 29th, 843-661-0937 is our number as the hurricane made its way onto the shores of western Florida. Uh, our hearts and prayers and sympathy and condolences and concern certainly go out to those who um call that part of the country home. We can relate. I mean, we can honestly and truly relate. I don't know if someone from Nebraska can say, hey, man, I know what it feels like. Um, I don't know what it's like to live in Tornado Alley. Um, but, but we certainly understand with a certain degree of intimacy what it's like to live in a place that has an imminent threat of, of hurricane. So, yes, in the most selfish way imaginable, I'm glad it's them and not us, but it's still them. And there has to be some degree of human compassion as they dig out from under the muck. Um, this was one of the examples of the hysteria and sensationalism was probably worth it. Uh, as they warned, you know, heading into shore, uh, exceeded, what, what is it? What, how do they say? Good morning, Rev. I'm sorry. Good morning. Um, good morning, uh, Freehold. So, so when they say uh, rapidly intensifying, you know, you always kind of shrug that off. Well, of course it is. I mean, it's a hurricane about to hit the, the United States. They got to have a news story. No, I mean, this was, I mean, the, to, to, to me, the, the projection was necessary. I mean, the, there was a rapidly intensifying storm of record proportion um, that compares to Andrew and some of the other um, catastrophic storms that have made them uh, their way over the coast of South Carolina, I mean, excuse me, the coast of the United States, just in a very different sort of way. I mean, it kind of came in the back door, so to speak. Um, I saw some of the visuals yesterday, and it was quite daunting. I mean, it was pretty intimidating to watch, especially if you've lived through a couple of these things and can relate. I mean, I know how I felt the night of Hugo. I mean, I, I just too. remember that there was something different about that. We'd heard, I'd heard, you'd heard, all of us had heard to some degree uh, who are natives here that um, there's a threat of a hurricane. Well, there's always a threat of a hurricane. But Hugo, once again, um, confirmed that you need to take these things serious when there are uh, a threat of a direct impact. So the people of Naples, uh, Fort Myers, have you talked to your family member in Sarasota? Um, I have not talked to, but they lost power yesterday during the early afternoon. Uh, they had damage at that point where their, their screen around the swimming pool was all torn up, uh, but I haven't had any updates lately. Um, from Orlando late last night where my mom and my brother live, uh, they had a lot, wind gusts and rain, a lot of rain, uh, and that just continued through the overnight hours. I haven't heard from them yet this morning. Um, however, I saw on the news that uh, Altamont Springs, which is right north of Orlando and is very close to where my mom and brother live, they are in what they call a catastrophic flood emergency there because of the amount of rain. Yeah, and, and the water's not to be fooled around with. Nope. I, mean, I mean, the wind is the wind, and the optic of the wind, blowing a building, you know, blowing the roof of a building, I mean, that's, that's you know, that's menacing. But the water is what is so deadly. The water is what is so powerful. These storm surges... And I saw some of the visuals of the water making its way on uh, on the land. And Naples is one of the most affluent zip codes in America. I mean, it's not a suburb of Washington, but it's done unbelievably well for itself. So there are a lot of um, affluent folk and um, and million dollar, multi million dollar homes in the Naples area. And uh, we'll see how it fares. I would imagine as daylight comes, you'll begin to see some of the uh, reporting about how it fared or how it didn't fare. Um, I read like 42,000 linemen are waiting in certain staging areas, prepared to go down to Florida as soon as they get the green light. Um, DeSantis has already said that as soon as the sun comes up, they assess 
the situation, they're going to give the green light to get these line crews into Florida to repair service. And um, I mean, the sooner the better. You know, there's certain things you, you can't fix in a second. I mean, you can't if a building's blown down or some property's flooded. I mean, obviously, there's a, a process to get that back in um, some sense of normalcy. But the power being turned back on is always an important first step in getting back to um, some sense of normal. So we certainly, and I mean this sincerely, our, our prayers and, and, and heartfelt sympathies and concern are certainly with those people in western Florida um, as they deal with something they hardly ever have to deal with. You know, when one of these major hurricanes makes its way on, uh, on land in Florida, it's normally on the east coast. And then they get a storm after it's been over land for a day or so, but they had a direct hit. And um, we shall see um, in the next, what, four or five hours exactly how much damage was done and how quickly they can get back to some sense of normal. It'll be a long time before things get back to normal, but some sense of normal could be restored uh, once these thousands of heroic line crew members are able to go down and, um, and get power restored and get those folks back in. I mean, at least you can take a shower, cook a meal, you know, t- turn your lights on, uh, turn a radio or a television on to find out exactly what what the news is like. So um, I would imagine that is such an important first step. And um, thanks to the 40-some-odd thousand linemen who have agreed to um, do what they always do, and that's get down wherever it is that needs their their aid or assistance. 843-661-0937. Very quick and brief sports report. You ready? Yeah. The Braves need to sweep the Mets or they're not going to be National League East champions. Are you convinced of that? Yep. Um, a lackluster performance last night against the lowly Washington Nationals while the Mets made a comeback against the lowly Florida Marlins. Um, the moral of this story, it's simple, Rev. When you get 10 and a half games behind, you got to play 700 baseball forever. And you can't. I mean, you just can't. No, no team in, in Major League Baseball history or very few teams in Major League Baseball history are paid 700. I mean, you play 700 baseball for a week or two or three. But since June the 1st, the Braves have had to win seven of every 10 games uh, unless the Mets just collapsed. And they're too good to collapse with Scherzer and DeGrom. So here we go heading into a weekend series against the New York Mets with, with what I would argue the Braves having to win all three of those games because they're really too behind. No, they're not. They're only one behind, but they lose the tiebreaker. So they're really two games behind. And I, and last night was a big game. I mean, heading into the series, you, you, the, 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 I think you would agree with me, Rev. The Braves have had a handful of games recently where they could have taken a, a, a major step forward, and they just haven't. That's right. I mean, you know, they, they played unbelievable baseball since June the 1st, but they've had a chance about three or four or five times to take that next step, to claim that division as their own. They're the defending National uh, League East champions, the defending World Series champions. And at every t- every time they get a chance to take that next big step, they don't. Combined with the Mets at a comeback, the Mets were down 4 nothing in the sixth inning last night, came back and won it 5-4 to four in extra innings, if I'm not mistaken. So give the Mets a little credit. You know, at every moment they feel like this thing is about to slip away, they step up. They figure out a way to win a game on the same night that the Braves lose. It'll be an interesting. I don't know how the weather will affect that series. I don't know if anybody knows yet. Um, I do know there was a report out of New York yesterday 
that the Mets had agreed to play their game at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, fly to Atlanta, and play game one today in anticipation of some weather event delaying or postponing a game, and the Braves didn't want any part of that. Uh, I don't have any idea why. You know, would I would imagine uh, you make a deal with your fan base, you're going to play a game on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, do the best you can to play the game on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, unlike my beloved Gamecocks, who took the chance to be the first team in America to cancel a game just because they chose to cancel a game. Dawn Staley did go on the record yesterday. You saw that or not? I did. She said she will apologize if that little girl – I admit she was wrong. Okay. I mean, we got a full-fledged investigation endorsed by two universities that found nothing to happen. Um, But the student who says she heard racial slurs, Dawn says, I'll apologize if that lady, if that young girl admits that she misheard something. So, I, you know, it's Dawn's prerogative, I guess. And nobody at the university is is going to put any pressure on her. So why wouldn't you do it? Uh, mm-hmm. As Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. Why, why wouldn't <laughs> Dawn do it her way if nobody at the university is going to hold her accountable? But that's her story, and she's sticking with it. That I, And she said she will apologize if this young lady says that um, she didn't hear anything. So, I mean, you know, and, and let, let's, let's be honest. I mean, I'll say it. I'm not afraid to say it. What if the person were what? I mean, I think you've got to consider that with Dawn and her past. Um, what if this person who says they heard these remarks, what if this was a— a white person. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, that, that's unpopular to say, and it's it, it may be a bit insensitive to some of the uh, woke commentators in America today. But but I'm much you know I don't much care what woke commentators <laughs> care about me or or my opinion. Um, let's get to the serious matter at hand. I mean, obviously the the pace and track of the storm is something we're paying close attention to. And um, Freehold says we'll have a WMBF meteorologist, whether it's Dockery or Arnold, one or the other will be with us at 8.30 this morning to give us a, um, a real-time report of where it is, where it's headed, and what um, conditions we're likely to have to uh, endure during the storm. Now, the Gamecocks play tonight at 7 o'clock, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. You're going? Yep. Plan okay. on it. Rev's going. Um, he said to adopt and adapt his schedule. The Braves fans didn't make theirs. Clemson fans didn't make theirs. But the Gamecock fans <clears throat> did make their fan base. <laughs> See, here's my problem with this. You ready? You want to get to the crux of my concern? Oh, yeah. I've heard through the grapevine that the coaching staff at USC liked the idea of having two extra days to prepare for Kentucky. Okay. I mean, I get that. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, you get sense. a couple of extra days. You play your game on Thursday night. Now, Spurrier would have played every game on Thursday night because he liked playing golf on Saturday. But he's a football savant. But Spurrier. But I mean, he's a football savant. Football savants can get away with things that a lot of other folks like us can't. But but here's my complaint. Here's my criticism. Um, if you change the, the, the day of the game wholly based on the weather, I believe our fans are unsafe on a Saturday at noon in Williams-Brice Stadium. I think we stretch and stress the assets of the state of South Carolina, public public uh, first responders and, and, and public service authorities and highway patrol, but all, all these entities are, are groups of people that have to dedicate resources to a ball game in Columbia when they could have to rescue someone from a flood or a wind event or whatever. Okay, I understand that. I mean, it was all about the weather. I, I, you know, I would have waited a day longer, and it looks to me like the chance of rain late tonight is as good as it is, you know, afternoon on Saturday. So we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But here's my problem. I heard from some inside the program 
that some of the conversation centered around a couple of extra days to prepare for Kentucky, a good top 10 football team. I don't know if Kentucky's top 10, but they're ranked top 10. They're a good football program. I don't know if they're top 10. Having said that, was the deal or not to play seven home games in front of your season ticket holders and avid fans? I mean, is that not the deal you made? Because if we're going to start saying, well, a couple of extra days to prepare for Kentucky, well, why not play the Vanderbilt game on a Thursday night to give you a couple of extra days to prepare for Florida or for Tennessee right. or for Clemson? Why not play Why not um, play the Tennessee game on a Thursday night? Just say something's wrong with the weather. I mean, there's something out there that we believe is, is a threat to our fan base, so we're going to play the Tennessee game on a Thursday night. And somebody in the program says, because it gives us, gives us an extra couple of days to prepare for Clemson. You made a deal with your fan base. Your fan base spends, spends a bunch of money at Clemson, at Carolina, at Georgia, at Georgia, and I would say Georgia Tech, but that's not the case, at any of the major football programs. And I'm being very gracious to the Gamecocks when I say major <laughs> football program. I mean, they are one of the top 20 funded programs in America. Why they don't win, I, I, you know, that, that's I've struggled with that for 50 years. But, that, you know, it is what it is. But, but did you or did you not make a deal with your fan base that you would play seven games at home on a Saturday. I mean, that's what the fans expected. Well, to me, when you make that deal, you do everything you can to honor that commitment. And when I hear that some of the decision-making may have centered around having an extra couple of days to prepare for Kentucky, that's not putting your fan base first. And they're the ones that foot the bill. They're the ones that allow the trains to run on time. And at Clemson, and I'm, I'm going to say this about Clemson, I think Clemson made a good call. Because Clemson agrees that they made a deal with their fan base to play seven games at home at the or the announced time. That's the deal. And when people make this financial commitment to be a fan of the Gamecocks or Tigers, they expect you to be a person of your word, to do what you said you would do. And you said you were going to play it Saturday at noon. And you're not. And part of the reason you're not, from what I'm understanding, is some folks like that extra couple of days to get ready for Kentucky. And I just think that's a lousy, self-serving, um, not making fans your priority reason to play on a Thursday night instead of a Saturday. So there, that's that. And I just, I heard rumblings of this a couple of days ago. You know, some, some of what went into making the decision was the coaching staff liked to have the extra couple of days uh, to prepare for Kentucky. Okay, well, fans, just just deal with whatever they throw your way. <laughs> I mean, just, just, just go to williams Bryce when they say, um, it's time to go to it. But no, I mean, at the beginning of the year, you expect as a Gamecock fan to have seven home games on a Saturday. The university owes you every every opportunity they can. I mean, it's something, I mean, I understand the storm. I mean, that, that's out of left field. I mean, I get that. That changes the dynamic. But some of the decision was based on having a couple of extra days to play for Kentucky, and that's unfair to the fan base. Let's go to the vault. And you're saying that's not, not a valid That's not reason. the deal not, they not made. Consideration. Sure. I mean, I it, the, the consideration had to be 100% about the weather. Yep. 100% and, and public safety about the and weather resources. and public safety. And I'm hearing that that is not what the case was. Some of the decision was based on, in other words, hey, there's this storm coming and we may or may not have a weather event that, that is worthy of delaying a game. But not only that, we could we could get a couple of extra days to prepare for Kentucky. That's putting your fans in the back seat of the Gamecock Nation mobile, and they deserve better than that. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Morning. And yet, you still give them your money. You still show up at the games. And you still send your kids to the university. So why would they stop? You know? 
They have no incentive to stop. You know, kid, is it a, is, you know, they, they make it out to where you're unpatriotic, these Democrat fascists do, if you disagree with your government. You know, and, you know, you hear people say, you know, I went and fought for my country. And, yes, you fought for your country, but you damn well didn't fight for your government. And what I'm leading up to, the minute I heard the fascist, godless Democrats talking about blew up, blow up his pipeline, and then I, right after, I, you know, they started running about about that, then I said, of course, Tucker you know, chimed in on it. Say that out loud. I mean, would you burn down your old house? It's like, I'm going to make a point and burn down my radio station. Why would Putin blow up his pipeline that is, that is his, someone argue his primary source of power? Well, the answer is he wouldn't. So who would do it? Who has the most to gain from it? Well, if you watch Tucker, you can see where it all, Joe Biden and other people of the fascist Democrat Party they're pretty much that, that they would, they would close down Nordstrom, too. Did you see that? Sure did. Okay. So Putin, Putin, didn't, Putin did not sabotage his own fuel line. No, he did not. And I will tell you right now, and nobody thinks like we do did. So who does that leave? Fascist Democrats. When I say fascist Democrats, you got to understand that's worldwide. There's all the nutcases in Europe. All of the nut cases in Australia, all the nut cases in New Zealand, you name the country that's supposed to be a democracy, and they're filled with fascist Democrats. France, England, Switzerland, you name it, and America is the king of them all. And it is a crying shame that we have to, that, that there would been a time when I would have thought you would be crazy to think that our old government could possibly blow up a pipeline. Now, I guess you could argue we saw what at war with Russia and you destroyed the pipeline. But where are the environmentalists on that? Okay? I mean, if we did do it, which it had to be us, it had, if I say it, it had to be somebody from a democratic country that did it. It had to be. No one else would do it. I mean, the Russians wouldn't do it to themselves. So it only leaves us, correct? The Western world. Right, the Western world. It has to be somebody in the Western world. And I wouldn't put it past the United States of America to have done it. And here's another thing for all of your your leftist fascist buddies that are out here. You know, all, all of our leftist fascist buddies. You got some, I got some. Where are the feminists at when these people, when, I mean, not one, not one feminist in America has spoken up for these women in Iran. That, you know, they aren't asking to go topless through the streets. They're just wanting to know they can sometimes without a veil, or the veil's a little too loose, they won't get raped, tortured, and murdered in prison. But all of these good, good people, all these good, good little fascist government Democrats haven't got a word to say about that, and I haven't had one of these good, good, good fascist, communist, no good, godless Democrats say a word about Martha's Vineyard. You know, they make me sick to my stomach. You know, I have no problem blowing up any Republican, and y'all know that. But where are these fascist Democrats? Because their God is is their politics, and government is the altar in which they worship their God. And they'll never, ever, ever, if, the, if those people were as loyal to, the, to God himself as they were to their government and their politics, we'd have a pretty dang good world. You know it? 
Well said. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. That gets us kick-started first thing in the morning. I guess we've left the world of sports and entered the world. Always count on Breeze to kind of transition us from. Well, to get us on track, gets, really. gets us back on track. Yeah. Gets us back focused on the important matters at hand. Take a break. Back in just a minute. So I go to the gym yesterday, and a couple of folks come up to me and say, hey, I bet you feel like a fool now, don't you, Mr. Smart Guy? What do you, what do you mean? I always feel like a fool, and I'm not a smart guy. What what what? Help me understand exactly where it is you're coming from. Well, you were the one ranting about the market, and there's another you know nine trillion dollars in sell off to be had. How about the market today going up 550 points? I said, dude, sit down for a second and let me explain to you why you are so unbelievably wrong. Despite your 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 status and intellect, <laughs> the the reason the market went up yesterday probably should concern us more than anything we've seen yet. The reason the market went up yesterday is the British version of the central bank or the Federal Reserve blinked. And the reason it blinked is these pension funds were counting on the government continuing to backstop whatever it is that the British government did. And the pension funds, uh, the bonds were held within the pension funds, and they were going to lose about half their value in the next six to eight, ten days, and they panicked. And, I mean, this is where we are. I mean, there, there is no good outcome here, guys. I mean, the less bloody, the, the less um, losing outcome is the only outcome there is out there. We've lost about $9 trillion in equity value. I think we're going to lose another $9 trillion in equity value over the next 18 months, somewhere thereabout. Now, some would disagree with that, and they're certainly entitled to have that opinion. But when you have any faith or solace in the market running up by 500 or so points yesterday um, because the the equivalent of the Federal Reserve in Great Britain uh, is called guilt. I mean, guilt would be the same thing as a treasury bond or treasury bill in America, G-I-L-T-S, I think is how they how they spell it. But, um, uh, you know, the, the Central Bank of England basically announced, uh, you know, and they did some tax-cutting policies and whatnot, and they were going to practice a little bit of austerity and a little bit of financial restraint. And, uh, you know, so some of these folks that found that these pension funds were invested in these bonds, they freaked out. So the British government blinked. And Wall Street, I guess, reacted to that global issue of a foreign government saying, hey, we can't do what we want to do. I mean, we can't raise rates. We can't aggressively attack inflation. We can't demonstrate any sense of fiscal sanity because the House is built upon, I mean, it's on, It's not just on sand, it's in muck. I mean, sand would be a better place to build a home than where we've built this this financial house of cards. So when someone argues that, uh, let's see what the, what the futures are today. I mean, we'll give most of that back today, I would imagine, uh, because once again, why don't you get a sugar high, you know, with something like, ah, down 224. Um, so, okay, yeah, you, you went up about 500 or so yesterday. Um, what will be the, um, the estimated opening... Uh, 29, 5, 34-ish. I mean, the futures are down a couple of hundred points. And I'm not arguing that the markets are a barometer of exactly where the economy is. I don't think the, the markets have somewhat detached themselves or disconnected themselves from market reality. Um, I went back last night, yesterday afternoon and last night, and tried to revisit something I said yesterday. I made a comment yesterday, and I want to be careful when I say this, because I sounded like I understood it, but I really don't. And I want to level with the, with the listenership. I have no idea. Here's what I believe happened in 08. I think 08, the housing market was so contaminated that it made everything else sick. Uh, when you look at the economy in general, I mean, yeah, we had some debt issues and some, some other sorts of issues that are not historically in common. 
but but the housing market got so just full of itself and, and and made a lot of mistakes within that sector of the economy and it spilled over to a lot of others so when you got you know subprime lending and non-verified loans and so much financial so many financial instruments you know were were i don't know involved in all that sector of the economy i'm arguing now that the economy is so sick the housing market is going to have to be adversely affected um i've heard real estate expert after real estate expert talk about supply and demand um, there, there is one thing we've got at our advantage or to our advantage here in south carolina we are a uh you know we're, we're a net positive migration destination i mean we're people want to move here i mean i can't imagine what the housing uh, will look like in states where people aren't moving to where they're exiting from so so there's a there's a macro that we have uh, in our favor south carolina is one of the five or six most popular places for people to move into Florida's number one. I think Texas is number two. And then we're in that next batch of four or five states. I mean, it's South Carolina, North Carolina. I think Tennessee is one of those states. And we have a coast area. You know, I mean, there, there are a lot of things to lower affordable living. That That's the macro. But, but the macro in the economy is still negative toward housing. Not just housing. Once again, I think housing drove the recession of 2007, 8, 9, and 10. I think housing is going to be caught up in the the recession of 2020 uh, late 2022 2023 might even go into into 24 i don't think we'll have positive gdp growth until the fourth quarter of 2023 we've had two consecutive quarters of negative gdp growth mm-hmm. we're going to have probably another quarter of negative gdp growth and uh, the the, uh, the last quarter of 2020 i don't know i mean I, you know i'm i'm, I'm estimating here uh, that there'll be some some christmas shopping and there's still a good bit of money circulating in the economy i think some of these lagging effects of what we're doing today will really begin to decimate the economy in 2023 i'm not talking about uh, the, the market's forward-looking i mean whatever the market says today the economy is heading that way that the economy kind of lags behind some of these indicators in other words i think the market is already priced at about a four percent fed rate and we probably i mean we could go to five the market i don't think is priced in another one percentage point in the increase of fed fund rate to attack inflation so i think there's still a good bit of downside to this but i went back last night and looked and we're told that you know the the events in housing of 2007 and 8 were all about subprime i mean there was a lot to do with subprime a lot to do with not verified but there were about seven million foreclosures of the seven million foreclosures the best estimations I saw, the most consistent number I saw, was about 2,500 of the 7,000 were subprime loans. I mean, there weren't, excuse me, 7 million. There weren't 7 million subprime loans. There were 2,500,000 subprime loans. The other 4.5 million foreclosures were basically negative equity and then high unemployment. I mean, what you would expect. Uh, you bought a house for 300,000, the market corrects itself. All of a sudden, your house is only worth 240000 You didn't have a big down payment in it anyway. You've lost your job or your, your pay has been reduced because uh, your hours have been cut. That's what happens in recessions. And all of a sudden, you can't make the bill. You weren't a subprime borrower. I mean, you were a, a, you know, a, credit, a credit approved borrower, but you got yourself in a negative equity position. And I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I, I know it's not the right thing to do. But if you owe $300,000 on a home that was worth $250,000 today, the financially smart thing, I didn't say the right thing. I mean, we can talk moral and ethics, but the financially smart thing to do is to get out of the house. Just give the keys back to the banker. 
And we had about four and a half million foreclosures that had absolutely nothing to do with subprime. It was all about negative equity and, you know, getting laid off at work or your hours getting cut back and your pay reduced and you can't make your, your payments. And some of this, I believe, were people who never saw what effect or impact of their, their paycheck. They just realized how underwater, how upside down they were in that home. They didn't have a big down payment. And they said, hey, I'll just give the keys back to the bank, let them deal with it. You know, everybody's caught up in this mess. So, so I can look in the mirror and, and honestly, you know, say, hey, man, I, I don't think I did anything that egregious by giving the house back. Now, here's what I don't understand. The $2 trillion of mortgage-backed securities on the balance sheet of the Fed. Now, that's there today. They got about $8.75 trillion in, in, in assets on their balance sheet. About $2.05 trillion of that is mortgage-backed securities. How do you unwind that? I mean, I don't understand the real estate world to that extent. How do you unwind that debt? I mean, if that debt is held on the on the Fed's balance sheet, how does the Fed disperse of that debt? And, and what happens to the housing market when it does, you know, when, when that debt gets back in the open market? I mean, what happens there? Who wants to buy that debt? I mean, how do you, how do you relieve yourself of that debt? And I look long and hard, and I don't know a Fed governor. I mean, I just don't. Uh, I got a pretty extensive contact list, and I'm kind of proud of my contact list, and it's very political. I mean, it's it's gamecock and political. I mean, that, that's kind of what my contacts but, but are. But no Fed governor. But I don't have the number or email to a Fed governor. I wish I did, because I would have. I mean, I'm arrogant enough to, you know, send a text or a <laughs> tell them what or, you think. Yeah, tell them what I think in an email. I mean, if I go with a nuclear physicist in, in one of these Reddit, <laughs> cha- or, you know, online chat rooms, I mean, certainly I could ask a Fed governor. But I don't understand. What, 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 is that another shoe to drop? You see where I'm headed? But because we've heard all these real estate experts say, you know, because of the, 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 the tight supply and demand, we're not going to be asset depreciation. We are going to see asset depreciation. We're going to have to see, to me, about 20 or 25% asset depreciation. So if you've got a $300,000 home, I'm arguing by the middle of next year, it'll be worth 240000 I mean, I think there's a 20% asset depreciation or haircut coming our way. What happens? I don't know. I know what happened in 2007 and 8. 4.5 million foreclosures were not because of subprime, but rather negative equity stakes. So, so, so how do how is this different? I mean, if we get to a place where homes depreciate by 20%, how is that not negative negative equity as it was in 2007 and 8? I'm not trying to freak people out and take my words for what it's worth. But, folks, I'm telling you, we have a we have made a phenomenal mess in this economy. We've lived in la-la land. England tried to take one little, Great Britain tried to take one little step in, in, in convincing people they were trying to head the right way. They offered some pro-growth tax cuts, and they tried to, Stop some of the bond purchasing. In other words, what we call quantitative tightening. They tried a little bit, about a week of quantitative tightening, and some of these pension funds were invested in those bonds. They saw a dramatic decline in the, in the, the price of those bonds. What they saw was uh, 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 evidence of what those bonds are really worth. I mean, they're not worth what we propped it up. And it goes back to the yellow shirt debate that we had with Rev. You know, Rev wears a yellow polo shirt. And I said, what is that shirt worth? Don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody knows what anything is worth. Because the Fed is so distorted, market realities in housing and in, in farmland. I mean, it, I don't. I don't think anybody knows what anything is truly worth. And, and my best estimation, Rev, is we went from forty-two trillion dollars 
in corporate equities and mutual fund investment to $33 trillion. So we've lost about $9 trillion. I'm arguing we hadn't lost anything. We're getting back to where things should be priced. And I think that, the you know, what, what is the value of, of Apple in a reasonably in a reasonably incentivized private sector when the fed is ha- when the fed has historically uh, when the fed has historic average interest rates and its balance sheet let's say a trillion bucks i mean for argument's sake let's say the fed has a trillion bucks on its balance sheet and interest rates are you know home mortgages are 7% i mean that to me that's kind of an historical average up until 2007 and 8 when the world changed and we never went back to any sense of normal we've left interest rates at about zero percent and i've argued all week but we're living in la la land and if you live in la la land and you decide to get back to the real world there's going to be some pain there's going to be a tremendous amount of pain and the most discouraging number i've seen all week is the number yesterday in the i guess the run-up in a bear market of, of Wall Street reacting to what what I would argue, I mean, when Wall Street rewards fiscal irresponsibility, you know we're in a bad place. And that's what Wall Street did yesterday. I mean, it went up about 500 some odd points because the Bank of England and some of the central, the central bank of Great Britain said, I don't know that we've got the stomach to do this. I mean, we're going to keep faking it. I mean, we faked it this long. We'll just keep faking it for a little bit longer. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937, Republican candidate for probate court judge Jesse Cartrett will be here at 8.05. Also at about 8.30, we'll have a meteorologist, whether it's Dockery or Arnold, to update us on exactly what we can expect in regards or in relation to Hurricane Ian, which is now a tropical storm. I'm trying to wrap my arms around some things you said during the last segment, but basically we had an update. We, we broke a streak of a lot of down days in the markets yesterday, had an update, but you are saying that is actually a negative. Well, to me, it's a, the, 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 the British government blinked. I mean, they, they were going to do what Jerome Powell says he's committed to. They were going to attack inflation, and uh, there was some bond investments. I mean, there, there, some pension funds had large positions in some of these bonds, and the bonds were being destroyed because of the British government's intent to address inflation and get back to some sense of fiscal um, sanity. And the, the British government apparently said, hey, I mean, we can't. I mean, I don't have the stomach for this. And so, yeah, I mean, a good day on Wall Street yesterday, but in the grand scheme of things, a, a, an obvious example of what we're going to have to endure if we're going to get ourselves to a responsible place of, um, of safeguard of the economy. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Morning, Larry. Good morning. Now, I think, I, I don't want to speak completely for him, but if Reggie Armstrong from Armstrong Wealth Management were here today, he might tell you this, a couple of things. The traders have been looking for that rebound in the market for about three days. And CNBC and the folks that try to explain what happened in the market, they see what happens, and then they go look for a story that tries to explain it because they don't understand the technicals of the market. But if you think of it this way, if you were running a sprint in a direction, eventually you have to take a breath. You've got to slow down for a minute and take a breath. The market has been sprinting downward. And like I say, traders have been looking for a slight return but it's not like the market reversed itself because yesterday's high was still a lower high than the previous high. It, it's doing what a bear market does. It's just called a relief rally. Just sometimes you have them. So 
Um, I, I'm with you. The person that told you you didn't know what you're talking about didn't know what they were talking about. Um, but, uh, and you may see it retraced today, as a matter of fact. But one thing I do want to warn you about, the futures market is not the future of the market necessarily. And it will sometimes trade. They'll, they'll uncouple. And I don't even look at the futures market anymore. Heck, I don't even look at what the market did overnight anymore. Because until they ring that bell, you really don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, it's just an implied open. I mean, that's all it is. They're, 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 they're speculating on what the market is going to do. But, but it, it, I think you'll agree with this, Larry. At 630, it's all I got. No, you're right. Yeah, it is all you got at 630. That's true. Um, so, and, and most of the time, it is a leading indicator, but but not always. Agree. So, because you never you never know. But the one thing that I don't see, even in this bear market, is I don't see panic selling. the 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 market is performing like the market should. Um, I don't see you know some huge hedge fund dumping trillions of dollars. So we'll see how it goes today, but. Yeah, there's not a crash. You know, that that's kind of the question. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. And I look, and, and all I'm giving you is my opinion, guys. I mean, Larry gives his opinion. Reggie has an opinion. I mean, the guy at the gym has an opinion. I'm not, I'm not the, the foremost expert on these sorts of things. Uh, Rev asked me a second ago, where do you read this stuff? Guys, I got about 10 or 12 places and, and six or seven people that I speak with about every day or other day. And then that's kind of, I mean, I, I try to digest that information and come out with the best determination I possibly can. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number continuing down the road of better understanding. But to me, it's the most, I mean, it's the central story in American politics today. Because, excuse me. It's a reflection of the economy. And when you look at poll after poll after poll, um, people are casting their ballots because of how they feel, uh, economically it's it's do i trust the republicans with the economy do i trust the democrats with said, the economy it's the economy stupid and there are a lot of questions about the economy and i think you're going to see this sell-off uh, continue in the market up until november and it will probably help the republicans and hurt the democrats you said something several time about the fed balance sheet and you've mentioned the fed balance sheet has two trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities a, Y, and B, is that left over from 2008? Well, I mean, I would imagine, yeah, in 2008, um, they were trying to prop up the housing market. And, I mean, if you are AIG or Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, the last thing you wanted exposure to was more home mortgage-backed securities. I mean, you didn't want anything to do with a mortgage. I mean, we're told that a certain percentage were subprime, a certain percentage were um, negative equity. So the last thing you wanted was to buy mortgage-backed securities, you know, based on or predicated upon what the value of that mortgage, what the likelihood that mortgage will be paid, will be paid back. So, so yeah, I mean, the the, the two trillion dollars today, but I mean, they began somewhat of a sell-off in about sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen. But but when the pandemic hit, they began buying back again. And what it does, Rev, it takes if you're a J.P. Morgan. I mean, if J.P. Morgan is buying mortgage-backed securities. That's less liquidity they have to do something else with. When the Fed buys the mortgage-backed securities, they infuse that capital into the economy, right? I mean, they create the, the, the money. But the Fed doesn't have money sitting in the bank somewhere. So when $2 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities become available, the Fed creates the money out of thin air, buys that $2 trillion in mortgage-backed securities, 
J.P. Morgan doesn't buy it. Goldman Sachs doesn't buy it. Citibank doesn't buy it. So they've got that money to invest in other places in a capital or market-based economy. And, um, and, and it, you know, it, it creates uh, just more liquidity. I mean, you know, it keep, uh, velocity of money and all these other sorts of things. But, but yeah, um, it was, the, it was the, the buyer of last resort. When, 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 when the economy began to show signs of uh, uh, some weakness in the housing market in 2006 and seven, and a lot of people predicted this. I mean, Michael Burry in 2005 was the guy that said, something doesn't add up here. I mean, home prices are up 20% year to year, 18% in some places, 23. I mean, something just doesn't make any sense here. Um, but, but once it was revealed, once we found out there was a problem in the housing market, there were still houses being built and houses being sold, but, but somebody had to buy that debt. And the Fed said, let's buy that debt. Let's buy that $2 trillion in mortgage-backed securities. So Goldman, now, now Goldman probably wouldn't have bought it anyway. So what happens if you've got mortgage-backed or mortgage-based debt and nobody, you don't have any takers? You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. So, so if Goldman says, hey, man, we're nervous about mortgages, and if J.P. Morgan says, we're worried about mortgages, where do you go? Where do you shop that mortgage-backed security? And it would have really caused a, a, a dramatic slowdown in the economy. And the Fed comes and says, we'll buy it. I mean, we'll take the $2 trillion of mortgage-backed securities that everybody's deeply concerned. We'll just print the money. You guys go do your thing. You allocate that $2 trillion of capital wherever you think it needs to be allocated. Um, and then they're kind of stuck with that. And, and the pandemic hits, and, you know, I mean, they began to unwind a little bit of it, not anywhere near as much as, as I think they should. But um, I don't have any idea. Here's the question I have, and and I don't know if Larry knows the answer or some other econo- uh, s- somebody economically inclined. I mean, I have no idea. What, what, what does the world look like if the Fed begins to allow those bonds to mature and, and that, 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 that money goes back in the marketplace. What happens if that $2 trillion of mortgage-backed securities goes back into the marketplace? That capitals, I mean, it, those bonds have to be absorbed with what? Capital. Somebody's got to purchase those bonds, and that's less capital to do these other mm-hmm. things with. So there would be, I mean, if the Fed put those bonds back in the market, in essence, they're taking $2 trillion out of other investment or ancillary investments. And, and I'm not complicated nor sophisticated enough. I mean, I know there's going to be an impact, no question about it, but how big is that market? How, how effective would $2 trillion, I mean, if we dump $2 trillion of mortgage-backed securities back into the free market, what does that do? Does that shock the market or does it take $10 trillion to shock the market? I don't have any idea. Here's the point I'm trying to make, Rev. I, the argument I make is we've gotten ourselves in a position where there aren't any good answers. I mean, there, there are the lesser of the dangerous answers. There are the lesser of the, uh, the devastating answers. But it seems to me, and there, there are those that will argue with me and say, you're too doom and gloom. It seems to me. I mean, most of these are bankers and, and you know, real estate guys. But, but it's, and I get it. I mean, I understand the eternal optimist. It takes to be in a, in a sector of the economy that you've lived quite the good life since 2007 and eight, Since the world blew up and we began down the road of, um, you know, quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, I mean, certain sectors of the economy. Here's what, here's what 2000, and I guess this is the best way in, in a macro sort of explanation. Here's what's happened in 06 uh, or since 2006. The Fed became as activist as any central bank ever has in American history. 
I mean, there's never been as activist a Fed for as long a period of time in a in a developed economy like the Fed has in the United States of America. I mean, it has really and truly become the the primary driver of growth or 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 negative GDP. I mean, it, it's been the it's been the influencer in the uh, it's been the quarterback of the team, the point guard of the team, the starting pitcher in Game Seven of the World Series. It's all about the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. So. Since 2006, the argument I'm making, the Fed has created winners and losers. There's, there's not a bigger contributor to income inequality in America today than the Fed. Well, but because the Fed, remember what we said yesterday, how much the 1% lost? I mean, the bottom 50, the, the market has declined. The, 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 the decline in value of the market is $9 trillion from 42 to 33. The bottom 50% have lost about, what, $100 billion, somewhere thereabout. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hurts. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you had $200,000 in a, in a mutual fund and you got $100,000, I mean, that hurts. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it, it's a big deal in your world. But in the grand scheme of things, it's all about the 1%. They've lost $5 trillion of the $9 trillion. The top 10% have lost $8 trillion of the $9 trillion. The bottom 50%. I mean, it's in the neighborhood of $100 billion. I mean, everything's proportional, and it matters as much to the guy who's got hundred grand in a money market, or excuse me, in a mutual fund, as it does someone who's moving billions and billions of dollars, you know, back and forth from one account to the other and one fund to the other. But, but it really, the, the Fed has driven income inequality in a way no policy out of Washington has. We can argue Washington has created income inequality. No, the Fed has contributed more to income inequality than any entity or enterprise ever has in American history. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Thursday morning, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. And I want to say this, WMBF have been unbelievably gracious with their access to meteorologists as we track the storm. I mean, it's only a tropical storm, but it's still a tropical storm. Um, If you live in South Carolina, September is a month that we're always paying attention to some of the tropics and what happens with weather formations and whatnot. And and I said it this morning, and I'll repeat it. I'm glad it's not South Carolina, but I still hurt for the people of Naples and, and Fort Myers and some of the other um, areas in western and the Panhandle, excuse me, the um the western Gulf Coast of Florida, because we know what it's like here in South Carolina to have your worlds turn completely and totally upside down as a result of a hurricane so our hearts and prayers and sympathy and and condolence condolences certainly go out to the people in florida and uh, we wish them nothing but the best as i would imagine john decker the federal government will be there to aid and assist uh, despite some of the political squabbling we have between desantis and biden and republicans and democrats i mean there are republicans and democrats in florida that need help state and federal government i hope will um will get along well enough to help and aid and assist those folk. Oh, absolutely. President Biden has already spoken to Florida Governor DeSantis. That was Tuesday night. I am certain that they will continue talking in the days, weeks ahead, as uh, the recovery rebuilding of Southwest Florida uh, will have to continue. And I second your thoughts about the people of Southwest Florida. But you're right. Politics gets put aside, put aside uh, when you have natural disasters like that. Uh, and the uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency needs to coordinate with the State Emergency Management Agency in Florida. That is happening, and uh, 
let's hope that uh, the recovery is a quick one for those people. John, I want to be as respectful as I can. I mean, it's clear and obvious I'm a red state Republican from South Carolina, former Republican office holder. And I've made a lot of mistakes in my political life. I've said some things I didn't mean to say. I've, I've called people by names I didn't mean to call them by. I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes, but but something happened yesterday. And I want to get your, your take on this. And I want you to be respectful. I know you will, because I'm trying to be respectful. But that was concerning to me um, when President Biden called by name a deceased member of Congress. What, what, do, what are we to make of that? And what do those in the media I mean, what what sort of reaction did that create amongst members of the media who have an obligation to tell the American people what's going on? Well, you may have seen clips from questions being asked at the White House press briefing of numerous reporters asking questions about that gaffe made by President Biden yesterday. And the reason they were asking those questions is they wanted an explanation um, as to why the president would make such a mistake. You know, it's not the first time President Biden has made a gaffe. Uh, He himself has called himself a gaffe machine. I don't think the White House press secretary, uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre, did President Biden any favors with the way that she handled those questions yesterday. Um, I think she really fumbled it on his behalf. Uh, To me, best way to handle it, uh, president made a mistake. And as you pointed out, Ken, we all make mistakes. And yesterday was another mistake by the president. I don't know if you remember this, a few years back, He was at an event and he uh, was urging someone in the audience to stand up. He said, essentially, stand up, Jim, stand up. And the guy was wheelchair bound, obviously could not stand up. You know, that's another example of, you know, these gaffes by President Biden. So could it have been on the prompter? Uh, And uh, he was reading off the prompter possibility. Uh, And in that case, you say you blame it on the staff. I mean, Quite frankly, you blame it on a staff mistake, but I I don't understand the way that the White House responded to this gaffe that was made by President Biden yesterday. Last thing I want to touch on, uh, there there was a January 6th committee meeting to be held, but if I'm not mistaken, a member of the committee was affected by the hurricane. They have rescheduled the meeting. When is the meeting scheduled for, and are we near the end of these hearings? We are near the end. Uh, Yesterday was supposed to be the last uh, scheduled televised hearing before the midterms. It could be the last one altogether. Uh, As you point out, a member of the committee represents a district uh, in the Orlando area, and that was one of the reasons why they canceled yesterday's hearing. Likely will be scheduled within the next, I would think, seven to ten days. Reason being is because those members who are running for re-election – Uh, want to get back to their districts to campaign. And so this takes them away from that. And so that's the reason why I think it's going to happen pretty quickly, just a a factor of time in terms of when it will be scheduled. But this will likely be the last hearing that we'll see and hear and watch uh, before the midterm elections. John, last question. We've talked a lot this week about the economy, the markets, uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, What is the sentiment in Washington? I mean, we're, we're heading into a midterm, and obviously... Um, you know, certain political posturing goes on. I mean, you want to make it about this issue or that issue or this former candidate or this current candidate. But but at the end of the day, as a former politician, it's hard to win in a bad economy. And it seems to me that that's going to be the ultimate challenge. Once again, we, we can debate Dobbs and Roe v. Wade. We can debate the personality that is Donald Trump. But when we really get down to it, it seems that voters always defer to how they feel about the economy. What, what, what does Washington proper think about that? 
Well, I think that's right. You know, it goes all the way back to uh, something that James Carville said in 1992. It's the economy stupid. That's what people are most focused on, jobs, the economy, now inflation, record high inflation. And you see that in the polling, too, Ken. You know, no matter what poll you look at, that those are the number one issues for most voters uh, when they are asked what are the most important issues that you're concerned about as you make up your mind in terms of who to vote for in the midterms. Uh, so, yes, there are some other issues that motivate voters. Uh, you mentioned the abortion issue. Uh, for some voters, that is a very important issue. Uh, but uh, overall, just a general sense about the electorate, it's all about the economy. And as you point out, uh, Democrats right now are running uh, in a very bad economy as far as inflation is concerned. And that's not a good thing for them if they want to hold on to the House and hold on to the Senate. Well explained. John, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. We'll talk next Thursday. Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, th- there's a lot of posturing. I mean, th- there's a lot of trying to make it about this u- issue or trying to make it about about that issue. I just think right now, I mean, it's, it's, it's dominating my world because I'm a business guy and I'm always attentive to what are the conditions, what, what does business look like today? Um, I mean, if you're in a certain sector of the economy, I mean, if you're in the financial sector, I mean, you're, you're concerned about where we are and where it appears we're headed. If you are in the uh, the, the property development, a real estate business, you've got to be concerned about where we are and where it appears we're headed. Nobody has a crystal ball. I mean, Larry, Larry talked about the futures. I don't, I don't know uh, what will happen to the market today. I mean, the implied open, from what I understand, is based on a lot of variables. Um, the Asian market, I mean, I would imagine there's some supercomputer and an algorithm somewhere that says when the Asian market does this, when the European market does that, uh, you know, when um, – when, when earnings, when post-closing earnings of the day before, you know, indicate, I mean, I would imagine there are a lot of things that go into this implied open, but I mean, some Fortune 5 of the company can announce record earnings at 9.30 this morning and completely change, you know, yeah, where, where the market around. ends yeah. up. And I certainly don't understand, understand that. The one difference I see and perceive to be, and I've tried to read a little bit about this, and I think this is an interesting data point that we touched on yesterday. If you're in the housing market, I mean, if you're in property development or housing or, or, or let's say retail, I mean, real estate, by, by any, I mean, commercial, industrial, residential. I mean, if you're in real estate development or you're in sales of real estate and you are in the financial sector and you're under the age of 40, you've had a pretty good go of it. I mean, you, you may think you're smarter than everybody else, but you've really had a lot of tailwinds. You've had, tailwinds, you, yeah. you've had some significant tailwinds. I mean, if you're if you're trying to convince people to invest in company X, Y, or Z, and you go visit them every quarter and tell them how much money they've made, you've done a good job, but you've had an unbelievable support system or support partner called the Federal Reserve. Um, all of it. So, so if you're 40 years old or younger. You've not lived in this world. You've never had to consider what it's like when these tailwinds turn into headwinds. The Fed's been your biggest friend. What does life look like in real estate or financial investment when the Fed becomes your mortal enemy? Because I think that's where we're headed. The biggest friend you've had was the Federal Reserve. They're about to turn into your worst nightmare. Can you can you make it through that? 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Had John Decker a couple of seconds ago talking about the president. Um, and it's, it's really, I mean, it was very, I want to play it at some point in time this morning, him um, recognizing a member of Congress 
who died a couple of months ago in a tragic car wreck. And uh, the, the White House press secretary kind of I mean, doing the best she can to explain that. But I'll let you decide on mm-hmm. your own terms uh, once we get there. But Joe Biden, excuse me, President Biden is hosting a Pacific Island Summit. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us in our nation's capital. Ryan, um, Pacific Island Summit. Uh, what Pacific Islands are we concerned about and why is it worthy of a summit? Right. So, first of all, I think one of the reasons why it's worthy of a summit is that the U.S. is kind of looking to counter China's military and economic influence in the region. Uh, When it comes to the Biden administration, obviously he has made climate change a major part of his policy agenda. And for a lot of these countries, their leaders have made that a very big part of their agenda as well. A lot of them have kind of deterred talking about military action and, and military issues. Uh, to talk about climate change at, at, at places like the U.N. General Assembly. So I think that kind of lines up well with what the Biden administration is trying to do. But I think when it comes to what islands we're going to be looking at and what leaders we're going to be looking at uh, uh, for the rest of the week, the Solomon Islands as well as the Marshall Islands will be ones that we're going to definitely want to see uh, where that goes. But, Ron, from your perspective, this is encouraging people to follow the doctrine of climate change. I mean, I'm not calling it a doctrine, trying to be fallacious, but I mean, it, 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 there is a there's somewhat of a doctrine within the Democrat Party and some ranks of independent voters that that believe this is the imminent threat to the world and every country in the world we can get on board is to our advantage. Is that a proper articulation? Well, I mean, you got to look at it this way. For a lot of these leaders of these islands, it's one of their biggest issues, if not their their biggest issue. So it's a a major issue for them, and that very much aligns with what the Biden administration has been trying to say. So in many ways, it's it's an easy issue for them to talk about because it's something that's a main a very big policy uh, agenda item for not just the administration, but also uh, a lot of these leaders who are going to be in D.C. uh, for the rest uh, of today as well as yesterday. So it's low-hanging fruit. Uh, I mean, you could say that, but there's also it's not going to be the only issue they talk about. You know, China's going to be a huge, huge uh, talking point as well as some as well as the the economy and, and trade and some other issues like that. Ron, were you in the room yesterday when um when the press secretary tried to explain what happened with president about it. John Decker, who was great television's senior national editor, White House correspondent, did a pretty good job explaining. Uh, but, but were you in the room um, when, when press secretary tried to explain to the press pool exactly what president Biden was trying to uh, get across when he recognized a member of Congress who was deceased? Right. No, no, I was not. I, I was on Capitol Hill yesterday, but obviously, um, you know, the, the, those statements from President Biden surely did uh, set set a lot of the Internet and get, get a lot of the Internet and social media talking, especially conservative uh, social media. So it, it, it was definitely a, an interesting event to happen, and that's definitely gotten a lot of, a couple people talking for sure. Yep. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Hey, absolutely. Thank you so much. Have, have a good day. Um, I'm going to go back to climate change. This is kind of a story I've had. We talked a little bit about it yesterday, uh, but I want to go a little bit deeper into detail on this um you remember a couple of weeks ago, several weeks back, we talked about Lake Mead and the Colorado River and climate change and the leftists are saying, you know, if we don't hurry up and address some of the CO2 issues and the American economy, if we don't transition from fossil fuel to renewable energy or green energy, uh, the people in California won't have water to drink. The people in Las Vegas won't have water to drink. Someone did a pretty deep dive. Uh, US, U.S. News and politics did a pretty deep dive on some of the, um, here's my word, of the analytics of the situation um there's no question that the water level in lake mead 
is reaching record low. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, but there's this popular narrative that says it's all about climate change, that this drought was brought on by human calls, climate change, men are to blame. Um, but when you look at the government data, it really doesn't say that. I mean, once again, the narrative, the popular media narrative, and amongst leftists in America will say that, you know, the meat, Lake Mead is an example of what happens when you're reckless or careless or irresponsible with God's great earth that we all enjoy and need the resources of to live and live abundantly, right? So, so the, um, the U.S. News and Politics um, sent out a um, kind of an investigative team. They, um, they plundered through some of the data that the American government, our own government, keeps on um, the Colorado River natural flows from Lake Mead or into Lake Mead from 1930 to 2019. Um, the April Upper Colorado River Basin Snowpack from 1938 to 2022. Um, the other statistic that they took into account was the climate model yearly precipitation, average of 183 climate model members. So they've taken the government's own data when it comes to rainfall, when it comes to snowpack melting, uh, when it comes to um, the Colorado River natural flows. There's no change. I mean, the change is very, very, very minimal. I mean, it ebbs and flows. I'll show Rev as I always do because people don't trust me. They trust the Rev. <laughs> so if you look at the graph here. I don't know about that. You know, look at the graph. I mean, I it's up graph. and down, but it's just a steady yeah. line. Yep. It's a steady line. When you look at the you know, snowpack, it, it's a steady line. I mean, yep. there, there's some years it does a little better than others. When you look at the precipitation, uh, let's get here. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more rain. Yep. I mean, when you see there's a little time. bit of an upward project, uh, re- trajectory of, of the, uh, the trend line of rainfall. So climate change has nothing to do with Lake Mead not having as much water. Here's the problem. They're drinking more of it. I mean, they, you know, there, there are more people living in California, in Los Angeles in particular. There are more people in Las Vegas. The Colorado River feeds Lake Mead. Lake Mead Hole is a reservoir. And, and it's water's extracted. It is sent to Los Angeles. It is sent to, to Las Vegas and other parts of the West uh, where it's developed. And the majority is Las Vegas and, and Los Angeles. But th- there's nothing about climate change. I mean, if, if the climate were truly changing, and it was all about Lake Mead having less water because of man-made climate change, there would be something about the Colorado River's natural flow. There would be something about the snowpacks. There would be something about rainfall. There ain't nothing. That's an intentional double negative. There ain't nothing changing about it except we're taking more water out of the, the, um, the lake than we historically have. So here's a good point. If, if inflow stays the same, just use our finances, our family finances as an example. If Rev makes the same amount of money this year that he made last year, but he chooses to spend 20% more, he's going to have less in the bank. I mean, it's not a man-made disaster. There's nothing different. It's all about Rev's spending. So when Lake Mead is full and there's X number of gallons taken out of the, out of the lake, um, that, that, you know, are fed by the, the Colorado River, it, it, it's, it's nonsense. And, and why some people still believe in this popular media narrative that everything that ain't right is because climate change. I, I've not had anybody, and I mean this sincerely, Rev, I've not had anybody when broken down and forced to explain that can articulate or defend climate change in a reasonable fashion. 
I mean, I've heard nuances. I've heard, you know, the, the one-offs. Uh, I think it was a Jeff called one time. It talked about the modular nuclear plants. Okay. Dow Chemicals, I think, has built a modular nuclear plant. You know what the CEO of Dow says? We can, But if this is the way we powered our plants, we couldn't afford it. I mean, this is kind of an experimental system that we're trying. It's, it's I mean, we just, I don't know, but half of America are believing in something that cannot be proven. I'm not saying it can be disproven. I mean, that, that's not the argument I'm making. But, but when I look at the data, which is what most of us should consider as relevant facts, when I look at the data, the same amount of money, is, excuse me, the same amount of water is flowing in the Lake Mead from the Colorado River as historically since 1930. We're having about the same amount of snowpack melting that we've always had. And we're having a little more rainfall than historically on average since 1930. Lake Mead is, is almost dry because more people are drinking water in Los Angeles and Las Vegas because more people live there. we got to find another way to, um, to generate drinking water in those areas. And i got no idea what the answer is there. I mean, have we tapped out population? I mean, when you go out west, i got a buddy who went out west. You know what he told me he noticed to begin with? No water. I mean, there's no greenery, no water. He gets in a plane and flies and drives and rides around, and he says, there's no water out here, man. I mean, there's just not, you know, we, we live in a very um, plentiful and resourceful place when it comes to water. I mean, we live in a very blessed part of the country when it comes to that particular necessity of life. There's a lot of water in the south of South of, of um, the United States of America, North America as a continent. There's just not a lot out there. Before we're told and we're convinced to believe this is all about man-made climate change. This has nothing to do. Lake Mead has absolutely nothing to do with climate change. People are drinking more water. <laughs> therefore, the water level is going down. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, Ken, without looking on the Internet, just guessing, how many gallons of water does it take to produce one pound of almonds? Wow. I, everywhere you everywhere you go, everywhere you go, almonds, almonds, almonds. They're everywhere. It, it, we were at Sam's Club. My goodness, there must have been five tons of almonds on the floor. I've never seen anything like it. It takes 2,000 gallons of water to produce one pound of almonds. Wow. Now, now. I would just say I like almonds, but I don't need that many almonds. So if, if they want to cut back, California wants to cut back. And California, by the way, is no one producer of almonds in the United States. If they want to cut back on some water consumption, cut back on the almond production. It's just, it's out of sight. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I think we found the yeah, problem. There's a fun fact. I think we found the problem. <laughs> there's too many almonds being grown in, in, in America. And it takes too much water to produce those almonds. There's a lot of nuts in California. So, so yeah, but if you want to be a responsible government official, outlaw the you know the farming of almonds. We can't have that many almonds and expect to not run out of of water if it takes that much. And I, I've read somewhere I didn't know the number, but I've read somewhere it takes a lot of water to produce a crop of almonds. Let's go to the phone. We've got about a minute. Boudreaux in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Yeah, good morning. My my issue with almonds is they make that almond milk, and I ain't never found a nipple on one. Um. And I just, I don't trust it. Don't trust it at all. This is, uh, you're talking about the the myth or the brainwashing about um, the global warming, climate change. They call it our climate change. Well, you've been believing that about evolution for years. You tell something long enough, loud enough, and often enough, people are going to believe 
uh, what you tell them. And, um, but yet they keep buying property on the coast and then turn right around and say the oceans are going to cover us. They're stupid. Anyway, uh, Ken, you going to that ball game tonight? I am not. Rev's going. I'm I got to get up early. He probably won't be here to about nine tomorrow morning. <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm flying well, solo. Look for me, Rev. I'll be out there and uh, I'm from Orangeburg. So if you know, if there's an upset, I'm going to say, go dog. <laughs> you know, so. Good deal. Oh, we'll Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. I think Rev's going. Um, I just got a text from a buddy of mine that says, stop beating up on the Gamecocks, man. You don't sound like a game. I am as big a Gamecock fan. I am as intensely loyal to the Gamecocks as anybody you will ever meet in your life. But I got to call it like I see it. And I think they've made a couple of big mistakes recently that need to be discussed. Back in a minute. What is the difference in pessimism and the truth? I mean, I was thinking about this. I was reading a couple of articles during the break. Or trying to, I mean, I'm skimming an article during the break. It is talking about 98% of people in the world believe we're heading to a global recession. I mean, is that pessimism mm. or is that reality? Yeah, I mean, if the truth is does, does happen to be negative. Okay, here's a better question. Pessimism? Should we be optimistic and not accepting of what reality is? I mean, I've never had the luxury of no. doing that. I mean, I understand the, um, I mean, it's like the, um, it's almost like the football player who celebrates a touchdown when they're getting beat 67 to 7. I mean, it's still a bad day. I mean, there's a moment of personal celebration, but your team's still getting beat 67 yeah. to 7. You can hope for the best, but you better be grounded well, I mean, in reality, but right? Don't we all hope for the best? I yeah, mean, how, how many people wake up in the morning hoping for the worst? Okay? Right. I mean, hope it, and, but I, and I understand the human compulse or the human reaction is to say, well, I, I don't want to think about it. I've, I've never had that luxury. And once again, I've been in a family business all my life. Whether you want to think about it or not, you have to. You have to deal with it. So when it says 98% of Americans, excuse me, of the citizens of the world believe we're heading to a global recession, that's not pessimistic. That's kind of encouraging to me. That's a weird way to look at it. But 98% of Americans, I think, are being honest and saying, hey, man, I mean, we, we got ourselves in this mess. And the only way to get out of this mess is to take some tough medicine. And, you know, if 15% of Americans believe we were heading to a global recession, that would concern me. 98% believe we are. That, that convinces me that people, despite their eternal optimism, they're still accepting of, you know, whatever facts and truths we believe are, um, right. are positionally and situationally uh, before Does us. Does anybody believe there's a chance we're not heading to recession? Well, there's a couple of oddballs out there, you know. Well, I mean... Technically, we're in a recession. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. It's interesting they how easy it. we gave up on that debate. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's easy how we just said, okay, maybe we've been wrong I, all these I, years. I didn't give up. I just... Well, I mean, yeah, no, but, but think about it. they're up to. All the experts are saying we're headed to a recession when, by historical definition, we already, we're already in uh, a recession, two consecutive quarters True. of negative GDP growth. Hey, our um, Florence County probate court judge is with us. He's running for re-election. I want to make sure we um, give Jesse plenty of time. Jesse Cartrett is here. I want to give Jesse plenty of time. But do we have a call? Yep. Okay, let's go to the call. Then we'll get to Jess. Rujan is on the line. Hey, Rujan. Good morning, guys. Hey, listen, the issue with Lake Mead, it's not an issue with Lake Mead. I mean, California and that, that Nevada, they've got the world's greatest water source sitting right there, right off their beaches. Just build a desalination plant and get all the water you want. It's not even an issue. I mean, these, these climate alarms, I think they built like a, a billion dollars desalination water plant in San Diego here maybe a year or so ago. I mean, do the same thing all up the coast. You know, and Rajan, and plus that if the climate alarmists believe the ocean is rising, 
then let's drink water out of the ocean and stop it from rising. So, so your, your idea is ingenious. That's, that's crazy. It's simple. It's simple. Rujan and I have already figured it out. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate right. it. Yeah, just do, you know, take the salt out of the ocean, drink the water that is so bountiful and plentiful and right before your very eyes. Let's go to the phone, then we'll go to Jess. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim. Hey, uh, Ken. Um, did you know that the the NSA records everything that's going on everywhere, and they have this thing called the Utah Data Center, and in Utah, this place records. It's got Hillary Clinton's deleted emails on it. Anyway, it uses 1.7 million gallons a day of water to cool those servers. You think about Silicon Valley, how much water usage they have. Here's another one that you probably never thought of. Fracking wells on the West Coast. Each fracking well uses 1.4 million gallons of water. If they're so concerned about it, they might want to look there first. Interesting. I had thought of that. So so a lot of the... um. A lot of the cooling down of certain, I mean, I know the Utah data center, that would be the, um, the intelligent cybersecurity apparatus of the United States of America. Um, and I think it's, it stores, I mean, it's a central hub where they record everything that flows from all of the fusion centers around America. Department of Homeland Security has fusion centers in every state. All of that goes from local police departments to, Correct. to DHS to, to the NSA. Okay, but and it's got the capacity. I mean, is there something called an exabyte, E-X-A-B-Y-T-E-S, and it has the capacity, the, the, the infrastructure to handle X number of exabytes, and they've centralized all of that in one place in Utah, right? I mean, am I right about that? Yeah, you're right. Okay. And the, lo- the local municipality threatened to cut off their water because they refused to pay the bill for their water usage. Interesting. Okay. See, see, we, we've got such insiders yeah, listening to this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. But yeah, I mean, what an exabyte is, I have no idea. It's a bunch. I mean, I've gathered that, but I read somewhere one day about this Utah data center and cybersecurity and national intelligence and, and the gathering of all this data. And there's, there's some, I mean, you, you know better than I read, megabyte, high, you know, there, there's an exabyte out well, there somewhere. I, I've never heard of that. And this computer I system. terabyte. Google That's it real huge. quick and see what an exabyte. E-X-A-B-Y-T-E-S. Jesse Cartred is with us. Jesse, before we talk about your re-election, good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. And before we talk about your um, your re-election campaign, let's, let's in, in general, kind of the cliff note version, what exactly is a probate court judge and why should we care who is elected to that position or not? Well, the probate court judge is the judge who handles, most people think, estates when they think about probate court. But in addition to that, the probate judge also handles guardianships, conservatorships. That's where someone in your family has lost the ability or the capacity to take care of themselves physically or to take care of their own personal business or their finances. They need someone that's trusted to take care of that. They've they're beyond the point at which a durable power of attorney or a medical power of attorney will do them any good. And so they need a court to come in and to vet the candidate who is requesting to be appointed to take care of those things for them because their civil rights are going to be suspended and those duties and responsibilities for taking care of them are going to be placed on the shoulders of the person who is petitioning to take care of them in that regard to either be their conservator or their guardian. 
The conservator is the person who handles their money. The guardian is the person who handles their physical person and their health care. And so you want to make sure that that's someone that can do the job, that's going to do the job right, uh, who has a good criminal background where it's clean, that has a good uh, credit score, they, they know how to handle money and how to handle it properly. There's no instances of uh, abuse of vulnerable adults or of minors in their history. And so you have to make sure that there's someone there that can do the job to take care of, of the vulnerable when, when that time comes. And so the probate judge is very important in that regard. We also handle mental health, including cases that involve drugs and alcohol. And uh, it's different than the, the drug court that you might think of when you think of the magistrate's court in Florence County. This is a different level. This is where someone, we're trying to stabilize somebody. They've got a mental health issue, but they also suffer with drugs and alcohol. And so we're trying to get them stabilized so that we can help them with all of their issues and get them back into the workforce and get them back to a normal routine and a regular life. So that seems to be the kind of job that you need to have a desire to help people. Yes. Okay. What, what led you down this road? I mean, I've known you for a long time. You're an attorney. What led you down the road of wanting to be a probate court judge? Well, I worked as a guardian ad litem in a lot of cases involving the vulnerable, especially children and uh, elder adults, those who, who could not do for themselves and who did not have a voice of their own when I was a practicing lawyer uh, on the other side of the bench. And I just felt very inspired because I was in probate court a lot doing these things as, as a guardian ad litem to, to represent those who, who needed it most. And I just saw a need there. And at that time, uh, the probate judge, Munford Scott, was stepping down. Um, and he wanted to step down early and uh, was, was able finally to finish his term after all. But uh, he had talked to me and, and he said, Jesse, I think you'd be a good fit for this position. And I'd like to see you step into it if I, were able to, if I have to step down. And so I thought about it and I prayed about it and I went back to him and, and we spoke again. And he said he was going to give my name to the governor. And... Um, Lo and behold, his, his physical condition improved, and he was able to continue serving for the remainder of his term. But when his term ended, he did not seek re-election, and I chose to run. I prayed about it, and the Lord led me to run. I felt called. But having said that, it's not a—I mean, it is a political position because you're asking people to vote for you. Yes, sir. But, but it's not—I mean, when someone walks in the door, it doesn't matter whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, black, white, green, yellow, conservative, liberal. I mean, they need help. You're there to help. Um, Absolutely. I but, serve but, you, all. but you've got to run a campaign. You've got to win an election to have that job. Why do you believe you're most qualified as a candidate for that position? I mean, it's not your position. You hold it now, but it belongs to the public. It's you're asking true. the public to put you in that position again. Why should they? Well, you know, I've served four years. So having, having had that four years of service, I'm acutely aware, aware of what the probate court judge does. Uh, you know, you, there's no better experience for the position than serving in the position. Uh, before that, however, I had 11 years trial experience as a lawyer. And the volume of cases that we handle in probate court in Florence County is such for a county this size that it, it really does, even though the statute doesn't require a lawyer, by necessity we need one someone who understands the rule of law, someone who understands the rules of court and of civil procedure, and someone who absolutely just understands the law as it applies to each and every one of the types of cases that probate court handles. You know, we, we mentioned the first 
two types of cases that probate court does, but in addition, or three actually, in addition to that, we also handle minor settlements that are waived down to us from the, the circuit court. Uh, we handle wrongful death settlements, challenges to wills and powers of attorney. Uh, we get petitions all the time to remove personal representatives or to hold them in contempt for misconduct. Um, there's also petitions to restore Second Amendment rights. If, if another court or if my court has taken away your Second Amendment rights because of a lack of capacity, mental capacity, for any reason, you have to come back through the probate court to establish grounds to, to receive your Second Amendment rights and have those restored to you. And so, you know, if you're a hunting enthusiast or if you just want to protect your house and home and your family, you, you need to be able to prove that case, and it involves the state attorney general's office, and they're going to fight you being able to get that back. So you've got a, a heavy burden on you to prove that you are able and competent to handle a gun safely and in order to do that, you've got to make that case to the probate judge. And you need someone who understands the constitutional implications of, of what has been taken away from you and how to get it back to you if you deserve it. Jesse, whether we like it or not, local elections, um, county, city elections, or bipartisan, excuse me, they're, they're partisan. I mean, you have to declare a Republican or a Democrat in most of these cases. Um, you've been a, an activist in the Republican Party for a long, long time. Back to my political days is when I got to know you a little bit. Um, why are you a Republican? Why are you running as a Republican? Well, uh, to be perfectly frank, I run Republican because I am a Republican. But I never ask anyone when they come into my courtroom, what is your politics? You know, how do you lean on the political spectrum? Uh, from the moment I put that robe on, from the moment I walk in the office in the morning, any politics, any beliefs that I have with regard to politics have to go and stay, they, they stay in the parking lot. And I have to be fair. I have to be objective. And I've never asked not one time a litigant who's come before me, what do you believe about X, Y, or Z? Because I cannot be impartial if I'm political with them. I have to be fair and impartial to a fault. And I have to be as equitable as possible with them. And in order to do that, I have to leave the politics out of the courtroom and out of the office. Okay, last question. If someone hears your voice, wants to support your campaign, um, obviously certain races generate a lot of interest, the presidency, the Senate race, the race for Congress, the, the probate court judge does not. How can people find out more? How can they join your team? How can they support Jesse Cartrett for probate judge? Well, there are two ways currently that you can, you can contact me online. You can go to Lawrence County Probate Judge Jesse Cartrett on Facebook. Or you can go to www.votecartrett.com. Spell that, Jesse, if you don't mind. Cartrett is spelled C-A-R-T-R-E-T-T-E. In addition to that, I'm, I'm happy to give folks my cell phone number. I, every speech I give anywhere I go, I give my cell phone number out to folks because I want them to know they can reach the probate judge if they need me. Uh, you can reach me at 843-621-1169, and I'll be happy to take your call. You can also reach us at the court, uh, not for the campaign purposes, but if you need something from probate court, you can always reach us at 843-665-3085. Okay. Appreciate your time, uh, Jesse Cartrett. I'll say this. We don't endorse. Once again, we're favorite 
Uh, we're favor Republicans, no doubt about this. When given an opportunity, we um we pat Republicans on the back and kick Democrats in the butt. But that's just kind of what we do here <laughs> on, on Wake Up Carolina, all in good fun. But but I'll say this: I've known Jess a long time. Um, he's a good, decent, honorable man. And in that position, but I mean, in some positions, you, you, that, that may not be as big a deal. But in this sort of job, you need to have a good, decent honorable man and i know jesse cartrett to be a good decent honorable man 843-661-0937 is our number congratulations excuse me well congratulations four years ago good luck this november thank you jess thank you ken take a break back in just a minute i mean i'll I'll confess i'm a blowhard who on rare occasion stumbles on brilliance i mean i i'm every bit of blowhard i'll accept that but there are times in my life that I get on somewhat of a winning streak, and I can appear to be borderline brilliant. I'm not, but I can appear to be borderline brilliant when I get on one of these winning streaks. I was I was pretty impressed that you started talking about exabytes a few minutes. So what ago. exactly is an exabyte? Because I actually have not even I don't I didn't know what I that read was. an article about the Utah Data Center and how many gigabytes and anyway the word exabyte and I'm like wow that must be a lot. So I looked it up and exabyte is the equivalent of one quintillion bytes or one billion gigabytes or one million terabytes okay you want to, you want to, you want to define that for the folks in pamphlet code that's an ass of bytes <laughs> 843-661-0937 let's go to the phone that about covers it here's charles and lamar morning charles good morning you know i enjoy hearing you speak with ryan smells and john decker but it's pretty doggone obvious they're both inside the beltway you don't you don't have to if you didn't know that all you have to do is listen to them talk and you and you understand that when the president was yelling out for a deceased member of congress yesterday what people fail to pick up is he was the next speaker after they gave her a tribute and played a video in her memory because she was one of the sponsors of the bill. So it's not like this is something that happened a month ago and he forgot about it. This is something that happened three minutes before he spoke and he forgot about it. Charles, I am a partisan. I make no bones about that. I want Republicans to win more and more elections. And I, and I, I say things to provoke and to prod and to advance Republican causes. But that was alarming yesterday. I mean, I don't care what political party you're a part of. I don't care what your belief in liberalism or conservatism or libertarianism. That was an alarming moment when the leader of the free world is as out of it as he was. And if I ever did anything like that in my business or or uh, with a client or to my family, my family would, would intervene. There would be an intervention. There would be some some help sought. I would be taken to some type of healthcare professional to, to be treated for, or to, you know, I I obviously couldn't continue to do my job, but uh, apparently uh, this guy can continue to do his job. I I just, I mean, he's continue to do it uh, the way he's done it the last almost two years, which is horribly, but I guess uh, he can continue to do that. I do want to touch on one more thing. And then I'm, I'm on my way to King Street this morning, so I'll be listening to you on the AM here shortly. But um, the the news at eight o'clock said there were hundreds dead and thousands trapped 
in Florida waiting to be rescued as a result of this hurricane. These people were given a week's notice to get out. You, it does you no good to pray for a hole while you're leaning on the shovel. Sometimes you have to dig the hole yourself. I'm very sorry that these people are having this issue. I'm very sorry that there are people trapped, and I'm exceptionally sorry that people are dead. But damn it, they had they had a week to do something about it, and they didn't do it. And I don't I don't want that to be as as sound as harsh as it does sound. I don't mean it that way, but it's a fact. People have we have to heed the warnings, um, and and not go through life waiting on people to take care of us and rescue us. Thank have you, Charles. Day. Have a good day. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the um uh, the opinion. That's a pretty. I don't want to say controversial opinion. It goes back to 98. It's pessimistic in reality. I mean, you can be pessimistic, but honest. You you can be, I mean, you can say what Charles just said and not be out of character to me. I mean, I, I don't think that's out of sorts to say that. I mean, how many people listening to my voice celebrate another human being losing their lives? Nobody. I mean, there's no, the, the only celebration I can think of if I were alive in 43, was it 43 when Hitler got killed or killed him himself? I mean, I probably would have celebrated. I know how I felt when it was obvious we'd killed, um, you know, Saddam, excuse me, um, bin Osama bin Laden. I mean, I, you know, and when we captured Saddam Hussein, I mean, I, th- there was a euphoric feeling I had about justice prevailing and justice being served. But I don't take any joy in anybody losing their lives. I don't take any joy in anybody having their, their property uh, destroyed. But there's a certain responsibility we all have, and we've got to make um, decisions that protect ourselves or not. And, and it's just a reality that some choose to not heed warnings. Some choose to not, um, take the advisement of people who are supposed to know what they're, they're talking about. And with that comes tragedy. I mean, that's just the, that's the nature of life that will never, there will always be people who won't listen and, and won't do what they're told and won't, you know, look after their best interests. I mean, there is, it was at the beginning of time. It will be at the end of time. The next hurricane that comes, if it's a, a, a pretty intense storm, I mean, there will be other examples of people choosing, there you go with the word, choosing to chart their own course, to blaze their own trail, to do their own thing. And at the other end of that, I mean, that sounds like a very romantic um, attitude and, and, and adventurous you know, I'm charting my own course. I'm blazing my own trail. I'm not doing what the government said to do. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I'm in that camp 99% of the time. But if I'm somewhere and perceive myself to be in imminent danger and there is a potential life-threatening situation, I'm getting out. And if I choose to not get out, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to have mercy. I mean, feelings are one thing. I mean, Charles just said, I am sad. I, I am bothered that this has happened. But wasn't it to be expected when people chose to not do what they were told to do? I don't know how many people are dead. I don't know how many houses are damaged. Um, I hear this story a lot. You know, we can replace the houses. We can fix, you know, the roads. We can re- restore the power. But you can't replace human life. Well, when you're when you're given warning and you choose to not do what the, the experts say are in your best interest, you're, you're putting your life at risk. And if you put your life at risk, guess what? You could lose your life. And that's what happened 
in uh, in Naples, Florida, in say uh, Fort Myers, Florida, and Sarasota, and some of these some of these other places. And, and I would imagine I don't have any idea how many people are dead. I didn't hear the newscast that Charles is referring to. I've heard no number all morning. We've got it on CNBC this morning. We normally have it on Fox, but we've got it on CNBC because I kind of want to see you know what the market does today. I think the market will give back probably everything it gained in yesterday. And Larry gave a good analogy. I mean, you can't sprint but so far. I mean, you got to rest after you sprint 100 yards. You got to take a break. And yesterday was a bit of a respite when it comes to the downside of where I think we're we're headed. But but I take no joy at all in anybody losing their lives. I take no joy at all in, in, in people experiencing hardship. Uh, some do. To me, that's kind of a bent gene. You know, th- there are people in the world that, that, you know, misery loves company. My life sucks, so I'd rather your. I, I don't, I, I just don't have that. I got a lot of bent genes. <laughs> I mean, I do. I got a lot of genes bent as bad as anybody could bend a gene, but I don't have um, that particular bent gene. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. So you wanted to play that Biden yeah, audio we from yesterday? Yeah, we have got, Okay, we're waiting. We're, we're, we're kind of like, this is live radio. Yep. We, we think a meteorologist from WNBF is going to call us in the next little bit. Wait, we we don't know exactly. But I mean, they're real busy. They're, they're jumping around and they yeah. let it be known. They're real busy and it could be not exactly when we expect it to be. But yeah, I want you to hear this. I mean, this is the president of the United States of America <laughs> addressing a, a group yesterday um, and just saying the name and actually saying is she here i mean just i don't let it speak for itself she was killed in a car accident in a car accident this year correct and her name is jackie i want to thank all of you here for including bipartisan elected officials like representative governor senator braun senator booker representative jackie are you here where's jackie i didn't think she was she was going to be here to help make this a reality and i want to thank all of you here that's scary. I mean, that, that's alarming. How in the world can anybody argue? I mean, I get the argument against Trump, okay? He's bombastic. He's crazy, out of control, won't do it. He, you can't tell him a damn thing. I mean, I, I, inject your description of Trump as you choose. I get it. I understand that. We, we can debate the merits of that or not. There's no defending that performance of a president of the United States. There's no defending that performance of a chairman of county council or a mayor of a small-ish American city. I mean, that's indefensible. That is a person who needs some sort of medical help, at least an evaluation and some sort of diagnosis. Play it again, Reb, if you don't mind. This is the president of the United States of America on a national or global, every time the president speaks, he's on a global stage. And this is a, a deeply confused elderly man, completely and totally out of sorts with reality. And I want to thank all of you here for in- including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here to help. Wow. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't have words for that. I mean, I really and truly don't. And I'm telling you guys, if you can defend that, then you're just being just, just grossly dishonest with yourself. I mean, that's indefensible. Oh, it's painful to listen to on many levels. Well, I mean, there's a human side of me that feels bad. I mean, it feels sad. Right. I mean, I feel like, wow, somebody help the guy. I mean, somebody please help him reorient himself and understand where he is and what it is he's supposed to say. But it doesn't matter. There's another clip I saw over the weekend when Jill Biden's called on a hot mic saying, you're supposed to go this way. You know, you, oh, yeah. and, and there are, I mean, Even half of stage. America is okay with that. 
I get, I mean, I, I really and truly, and I'm trying to understand this. I understand that half of America doesn't want Trump to be its president. Don't want DeSantis to be its president. Didn't want Reagan to be its president. There is no way you can defend that guy being president. That there, that's indefensible. That's alarming. That's dangerous to the fate and future of, of, of countries around the world. I mean, when the president of the United States is that confused and disoriented, it, it's got to send a message that, that we are, what are we? I mean, what are we as a people when we allow a guy that out of sorts to be president? And, and we kind of knew it going in. I mean, we knew this guy had some serious issues. But, but a lot of you and half of America said, but he ain't Trump. Anything is better than Trump. I'll ask you this. Is that really better than Trump? Is that, I mean, is that more tolerable than Donald Trump? 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Good morning. Hey, you know, Ken, I, when I listened yesterday and you said, boy, I'm on the radio, you know, four hours a day, and sometimes I misspeak, um, and, you know, that's understandable. Uh, you see grace in, in those moments, don't you? Sure, I do. Okay. But you don't give any quarter to Biden. You, you, Jeff, you can't defend that. <laughs> you do? I mean, if you defend no, I, that, I, you I lose any liquidity. Let, let me finish, and then I'll give you the floor, and I always do, and you know I will. If you sure. defend that as a president of the United States, then then you're, I mean, and I consider you to be a very smart, sane, legitimate source of another opinion, and I mean that sincerely, and we got a mutual friend, and I tell him that, but, but to defend that or try and defend that or equate that with what I do on the radio... It's just a bridge, not too far. It's a ridiculous bridge to try to consider. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying, look, uh, he is a old man, just like Trump. Does he misspeak? Absolutely he does. Is he as sharp as he was? Nobody would say he is. Um, just like Trump the other day, and, and I don't know if you reported on this, um, Jeff, Trump's not the president any longer. Donald Trump is not the president anymore. Yeah, but you, you, if, you, if you're going to endorse a man to be president, you have to acknowledge that the other day he said, when I met with Mark Zuckerberg in the White House for lunch, he put himself in a place where he wasn't, with somebody he wasn't with, I mean, that's that's how cognitively declined he is. Now, do you acknowledge that? There is no way you'll convince me that Donald Trump is in the same condition of cognitive, cognitive decline that Joe Biden is. It ain't even close, Jeff. We can argue whether Trump is too narcissistic, too, too bombastic, too self-centered. I mean, I'll accept that as a, as a fair and legitimate debate. And I have concerns about that sort of personality. But there is no way to compare Trump's cognitive state with, with Joe Biden's. Okay, so Joe Biden said the name of a senator or a congresswoman who there's 400 and what, 35 of them? Who, who died six months ago? Yeah, that, that, you know, uh, shame on him, right? He, like, there's, there's 435 Senate congressmen, and he, he called one out that died recently, okay? Donald Trump 
said he was at the White House at a lunch with somebody that didn't happen. He wasn't, he's not a resident of the White House. And you're saying that 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 is not the same uh, even in the ballpark? Nowhere near. Nowhere nowhere close. It's it's worse what Trump did. No. Come on, Jeff. But the whataboutism you're trying to well, I mean, But everything is no, the no, whataboutism. I mean, you guys just talked about saying something incorrect and getting grace. No, but but it's not. We all say things that are incorrect, but but I, I, I don't lose my bearings. I mean, I make a lot of mistakes in four hours, five days a week of things I wish I'd said different. But I'm always, I, I understand it. I mean, when I make a mistake, I'm aware of them. I don't know that Biden knows today that he made a mistake unless someone told him he did. That's my concern. It's not the yeah. fact that he made a mistake. It's the fact that I'm not sure he knows he made a mistake. No, I, I, probably he probably wasn't aware of it until somebody told him. Because it's a random acquaintance that died, and he mentioned her name. Okay, we Let's just see it differently, it Jeff. Let's put it in context. Where they supposedly just showed a video tribute to this congresswoman right before he but, spoke. But Biden's not cognitive. I mean, he he's in a state. He doesn't understand that. I mean, it'd be like watching him. But you've seen old people, and I mean this with all respect, but i got to say it. You've seen old people watch a movie, but they're not really watching the movie. They're watching television because they've always watched television. They have no ability to discern what's happening on that screen. That's where Biden is. Not every moment of every day. Because I think he's in these medical cycles. I mean, I think they, they medicate him, and there are days he's better than on other days. But, but, but he was completely and totally out of it, trying to, I don't know, address a, a gathering of whomever he's trying to address. But that's just, I, I, I don't see that, Jeff. I mean, and, and I'll argue a lot about, and I try to be fair with you about your opinions on a lot of things that I, sure. I disagree. I can't go there. I mean, that, that is, that's alarming and dangerous. For an American president well, to appear to be that out of it, forget the mistake, but being that out of sorts and trying to talk about something, we got to take a break, Jeff. I'm sorry, you can hang on, or you can um, we'll, we'll talk. Well, I think he okay. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We're already behind. Didn't want to, but I don't want to cut Jeff off. Make sure he has ample time to express himself. Back in a minute. Welcome back. Hour number four on a Thursday morning. We're waiting on the weather. We're waiting on a meteorologist from WMBF. I think we have one scheduled now. Freehold? Yeah, Andrew's, uh, Andrew Dockery is going to be calling at 9.15. Okay, because we want to know what the uh, the adverse effects of Hurricane, now Tropical Storm Ian, is when it makes its way to the South Carolina or Georgia coast sometime later today, early tomorrow morning. Um, I'm gathering that Friday is going to be a bad day. It'll clear up a little bit by Saturday, but I'm um, depending on how close you are to the center, the former center of the storm will have a lot to dictate or say about, you know, um, how bad the conditions will deteriorate and when. Um, we're talking this morning with CEO and owner of the Rogers Healy Company, Rogers Healy. Rogers, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I have spent about, I don't know, a, a thousand hours in the last week or two or three <laughs> and trying to understand where I think we're headed. I host a radio show, but I'm also in property development, some of these other um, fields that are, have exposure to certain things the yeah. Fed does. But but from your perspective, and you're kind of the expert that we refer to on this, um, sure. now that the Fed has begun tightening, and by that I mean raising rates, quantitative tightening instead of quantitative easing, um, I, I've got this belief, Rogers, I don't want to get your take on this. In 2006, sure. seven, and eight. The housing market was so sick, it made everything around it um, not feel so well. 
This is a little right. bit different. We've got an asset bubble, and housing is a part of that. I don't know that we have as many subprime loans and, and non-verified lend. You see where I'm headed. But but there's obviously been a, a, a big asset appreciation, and I think we're due an asset of depreciation. You say what about that? Well, I think the first part of your thought was brilliant, and I think that it's nice to have someone thinking, you know, with logic where back in the day, 06 through really like late 2000s, it was real estate's fault because people like me, frankly, qualified to buy my first home when I shouldn't have qualified. And I think that people, you know, have some PTSD from it, and due to skittishness, they've, you know, they, they have tightened up, but... You know, I, I don't think we're going to see massive depreciation. I think what has been needed and what we're seeing right now in, at scale is massive stabilization. But what we have now, too, is we have the millennials that are driving the real estate market. And so when that happens, you know, logic sometimes is going to get overrun by just basic supply and demand principles where, you know, obviously it's changed and things are not as great as they were six months ago. But when you get deep into the statistics and you find out that 98% of millennials that tried to buy a home in the last two years lost out, that's pent up demand. And I don't think we're going to see, you know, bidding wars and all this, you know, just absolute insanity we saw the last year and a half. But I do think we're going to be, you know, we have a good few year run ahead of us with people that are still leasing. Let me ask you this. When I, when I go back and read and research and try to understand, and I've got a lot of places I go to evaluate whether it's sound information or made up and cracked up yeah. information, but it looks to me like in the 07-09 period, had about 7 million foreclosures, roughly 4 million of those were negative equity situations. A person gets laid off, can't make the payment. They didn't have a big down yeah. payment to begin. We don't have that in this market, yeah. or do we? No, I, mean, I tell you what we do have, though, and people have kind of kept it quiet for, you know, every bit of two years is we have some balloon payments that are due. And people that, you know, got some, um, you know, forbearance and some, some, you know, opportunity from the government to make it right, a lot of them took advantage of it. And I do think that's going to cause some trouble. But these people that were upside down, they were in places like Phoenix and Vegas and Miami, even a little bit of L.A., and it wasn't in places like South Carolina and Texas and Tennessee in Oklahoma where people moved during the pandemic to, you know, live there forever. So, uh, and on top of that too, we, we saw the trends change for, you know, six months plus, which changed the comps. So I don't think we're going to see upside down equity. I think people got locked into loans that were not two to three year interest only loans. They were, you know, seven to 15 year arms and they got locked in at a rate that is, Honestly, it's cheaper than renting, other than obviously having to put a down payment into it and the cost of home ownership. But it was a good business decision. And even now at seven, you know, six and a half, seven percent interest rate, it's cheaper on paper if you've got the down payment to be a homeowner. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think we're in for this, this nastiness that a lot of us lived through, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Is there a number that concerns you? In other words, if the Fed continues to tighten and raise rates, I mean, the quantitative tighten will do a lot of things in the, in the, in the Wall Street world, yeah. the financial sector. Is there an interest rate number that alarms you? In other words, it's, I think the national average today is 7.08, somewhere there about, yeah. depending on what your credit score and qualifications are. But is there a number out there, Rogers, if the Fed gets too aggressive, that does concern you as somebody in real estate? Look, I mean, I'm in sales, and so I have to use my words, you know, uh, respectfully and, and selectively. But, I mean, look, 7% is not as ideal as 3%. But when you have a national rental average at $2,000 a month, 7% on paper is still a better deal. 
And what people can do is, you know, the, the, the saying is you, you buy the house and you date the rate. And so if you get in at 7% right now, let's say the Fed in an election year drops the rate to 45 to 5% to stimulate the economy, you can refinance. But the, over the course of that, the delta of what you thought you were potentially going to not save, you actually are saving money. So even if we get to 10%, which who knows if it's going to happen, and I'm not an economist, I'm just a realtor, but even if we get there, it's still a better deal in most cases than renting. But I think what's happened now, too, is that people are not looking at a home as living there forever. They're looking at it as like two to three years, which is better, you know, for the economy, better for my industry. And it's, it makes people more of a it's, a, it's a business savvy decision versus just an emotional thing. But but last question, appreciate your insight. Yeah. You, you would yeah. agree with, I think, there is a number out there that makes the housing sector more stable. I mean, when people can right. borrow money for 30 years at two and three quarter percent, you, you got to believe something's under that rug, that there's an asset bubble brewing somewhere when we allow that to happen. I'm one that believes if we could keep 30 year mortgage rates somewhere between five and a half, seven and a half percent, the housing market stabilizes. What say you? Uh, agreed. And that's the thing is the last two years, like it, it almost hurt real estate when interest rates were at two and a half percent because people thought that was normal. Right. And, and, and having a five and a half to seven percent interest rate historically is still really, really low, especially if you talk about the savings and loan crisis and what happened in the 80s and then the late 2000s. So even if we stay where we're at for the next few years, we still have demand. And, you know, I, I don't think it's going to go much higher, but my hope is in the next six months we'll get closer to that four and a half to five percent number. Thank you, Rogers. Appreciate your time. Very, very insightful. You're welcome. That's the reason I wanted him on, kind of an insider perspective, somebody who's in real estate, in property uh, development. It's unbelievable to think the interest rate on a 30-year mortgage could be 2.5%, I mean, the Fed created that bubble. I mean, it's an asset bubble. And, and, and the reason I don't think we're going to see as much damage in the housing tech sector as we did is... I mean, it's obvious the subprimes were a big problem back then, but the neg- negative equity. I mean, if we have a 10% depreciation, people were forced to make down payments. I mean, we didn't have 100% financing. I mean, if, if you've got a $20,000 down payment on a house invested in the, the, you know, the place you live, you're not inclined to walk away from that. I mean, no matter what the, I mean, let's say you get in a little bit of a negative equity situation. Let's say, you know, you thought your home was worth 300, you find out it's worth 275, but you don't owe 290. And people have had to make down payments on homes. They've got skin of the game, so to speak. So even if they get in somewhat of a negative equity situation, they feel like the interest rate is so affordable, it will it will allow them some reprieve and, and, and kind of work through this negative situation of the economy. That That's just kind of an um. And once again, guys, there are a lot of experts who agree and disagree on, on where we go from here. But but I think the, I don't say anything prophetic, but I think the, the most informed statement I make is when I say in 06, 07, 08, and 09, the housing sector got so diseased, it made everything else sick. The economy is so diseased today, it's going to make the housing sector somewhat sick. But I think the majority of losses will be on Wall Street. I mean, I said it yesterday and I'll say it again. We've had a $9 trillion loss in corporate equities and, and mutual funds. I think there's another $9 trillion to go but we won't get there overnight. I think by the third quarter of 2023, we'll have a fair valuation on what equities and, and mutual funds and bonds and stocks are, are worth. But between now and then, 
I mean, it's just going to be a bumpy road. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, yeah, I mean, I think there's some rough times ahead um, as it relates to investing. Now, I'm not saying the economy falls off a cliff, but I think the market has some really, really, really difficult times uh, ahead. Talking about difficult times, uh, the people of Naples and Fort Myers are having, uh, are, are basically digging out from under an unbelievably difficult situation we can relate and if you live in the coast or near the coast of south carolina your hearts and prayers go out to those people who are making the best of a bad situation but ian is or ian is still working its way up the coast we believe it'll make landfall sometimes and somewhere around the georgia south carolina border andrew dockery meteorologist at wmbf is with us andrew good morning how are you I'm doing good. How about yourself? We are doing well. Give me some good news, my man. Don't tell me any bad news. Give, <laughs> give us give us folk in the PD some good news and along the Grand Strand. Uh, let's start with some good news that I think Saturday is going to be at least clear. Okay. Okay. <laughs> How about that? But, that but, but tomorrow, day. tonight, we'll and tomorrow is going to be rough. Yeah, it is going to be rough. And, you know, it's not going to be the rough of anything that we haven't seen in the area before. But I will tell you that this is going to be um, a very loud and very soggy Friday on tap. So rain moves in starting overnight. And I think basically from the PD all the way down to the beach, uh, by the time you wake up on sunrise, uh, you're already dealing with tropical storm conditions. It may even be earlier than sunrise uh, with winds gusting anywhere from 40 to now looks to be 50 miles per hour. Um, I definitely think we could see some 50 to 60 mile per hour gusts closer to the beach. Um, Latest data coming in, actually now starting to ship that landfall a little bit further to the east. So uh, that's going to increase our storm surge. That's going to increase our wind. uh, And that's also going to increase the rain. Right now I have rain right now for the PD, uh, three to five inches. I think that's that's a pretty safe bet. Um, You might see an isolated lower total, which would be great. As you go up north by 95, uh, but for Florence, for Marion, for the PD there, I'm thinking three to five inches uh, of rain looks pretty likely with wind gusts right now. Average wind gusts for you all um, looking to be close to 40 to 50 miles per hour. I think as you go down toward the beach, we're talking 50 to potentially 60 uh, at this point. So the worst of the, the storm as it relates to the PD of South Carolina will be midday tomorrow. I would say basically from sun up all the way to let's just say let's call it six PM. Okay. And hopefully we could take that take that, you know, and get it out of here earlier. Um but right now I have heavy rain working into the P D. Um as early as nine. That doesn't mean it still won't be rainy and it still won't be windy um by the time that, you know, people are heading out to work and getting going into P D. Um so if you're inland the big story is it's going to be an easy commute to get to get to work compared to what you're going to have to coming home. Um, I know a lot of schools have started to do some remote learning in the areas. Um, I think we'll see a lot of people, if they can, uh, stay home tomorrow just because of the travel. The later you go in the day, um, it's just going to become uh, too tough. It really is. It's going to be one of those days where you think of a typical summertime thunderstorm, and that's what I've been saying. Uh, with the tropical downpour, imagine that for, you know, six to seven hours, and I think that's what we're in for here. Andrew, is there any chance this storm intensifies, reorganizes? I mean, when, when I hear folks say, you know, the eyewall or reorganization or, in, you know, r- rapidly inten- – is there? I mean, I've heard a couple of reports that say that is possible. Is that still on the table? 
So I'm looking at the data coming in right now, and that's actually what I was looking at before um, we called in here. Nine Right now, pressure's at 987 millibars. And just to give you an idea, Category 1 hurricane starts at 980. So this would need to drop um, about 7 millibars or dropping pressure, basically, to increase the winds. There's a couple of models that like the idea of it becoming a borderline Category 1 hurricane right before landfall. Uh, we talked earlier this week about some of the wind shear that's right there along our coast. What I could say is right now the official forecast calls for it to be a tropical storm with 70-mile-per-hour winds. Worst-case scenario, this is a Category 1 storm with 75-mile-per-hour winds. doesn't mean we'll see a 75-mile-per-hour wind in our area, uh, and I don't think our impacts will change by any means, but it's looking like we're going to be in the threshold of landfall somewhere ranging from 70 mile per hour to 75 mile per hour. Of course, the difference in that, one's a tropical storm and, and one's a hurricane. So I think it's really just a branding thing at that point. Um, I think the impacts for us are going to be the same, even if it does intensify by a couple of degrees here uh, sometime today. And we can expect better weather by what time on Saturday? I would say Saturday the rain moves out of there by the middle of the day, lunchtime. It's still going to be cloudy. It's not going to be the best day, but you will be drier. Um, I have most of the rain out of here um, as far as the beaches go by 8, 9 o'clock. We get a fast track through here. This thing's out of here, and you start to see the rain end hopefully by noon. Um, if not then, you know, it's scattered showers. You may even stay dry from 9 to noon on Saturday it's still going to be cloudy, though. It's still going to be breezy. Remember, a tropical storm, that would be a depression at that point, would be to our north. Uh, but I do know a lot of people that are either looking to go to a big game, whether that's Clemson or uh, they're traveling down toward the beach for the coastal game. And I keep saying that I think the afternoon, evening, it's cool. It's breezy. There will be a little bit of mugginess at times, too. Uh, but it's still not bad. It's looking pretty good here for Saturday afternoon and evening. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate your time. And you guys have been uh, more helpful than you'll ever imagine this week. Appreciate it a lot. Of course. Anything y'all ever need, let us know. Thank you very much. Uh, there's Andrew Dockery, meteorologist, WNBF. Between he and Jamie Arnold, they've really given us kind of an up-close and personal, intimate look of, you know, I mean, you, you get the general weather from the media, right? And I wanted to try to be a little more specific about Florence and Sumter and Orangeburg and and the beach and some of the listenership and um, ask it in a way that most of us can understand it. <laughs> Seven millibars doesn't sound like a lot to me. Now, it may be, but it doesn't sound like – I was hoping he'd say 100 more millibars, but I've got no idea um, how much – I mean, I know how hard it is to make a buck. Is it that hard for it to gain a millibar? You know, I, I don't know, but um, some of those are ratings. It's interesting when you live through these events, the things you pick up on, the things you begin to – uh, think you understand whether yeah. you do or not you begin to think you understand some of these um yeah you go up north and somebody talks about hurricanes oh they'll be there they'll millibars they'll be seven millibars <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean you know they'll pick up seven millibars in no time <laughs> right. <laughs> tell you about the one we had hit us yeah <laughs> yeah with a cigar in one hand and a beer in the other we telling, had lower millibars yeah, than you. you won't believe the millibars we've had to deal with down down our way let's go to the phone then we'll take a break we have uh, davis and sumter listening to wdxy hello davis good morning uh, I was watching the, uh, the evacuation from southern Florida, and if I had a wish, I would wish I could get Biden and Harris, Kerry and Gore, and take them to South Florida and put them in an electric car and tell them to evacuate and see how far they'd get 
without a charging station and watching all the other cars go by. And I'd come along and say, when they were beside the road, I'd say, trouble, having trouble? And say, I'll be right back with a five-gallon can of electricity. <laughs> I detect a bit of sarcasm there, <laughs> Davis. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I did read something the other day about the um, the potential likelihood of being caught in a storm and having an electric vehicle. And that electric vehicle need, needing to be recharged and you don't have access to electricity for a week or so. I mean, some of those folks in Naples will have, I mean, they'll go, and especially in the rural parts of uh, Florida, you know, in central Florida where the um, a lot of damage was done. I mean, they'll, they'll go several weeks without electricity. So what do you do if you got an electric car and you don't have access to a charging station or, or there's not a charging station? I mean, I don't know. I get the developing infrastructure. I understand that. I mean, I would expect there to be as many charging stations as there are convenience stores but um but it, it's 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 it would be a dilemma i mean it would be a, per, a perplexing dilemma to have an electric car with no electricity batteries don't create electricity guys that's the i mean i, I don't understand how many times we have they, they, well you know batteries no batteries store electricity batteries store power Batteries don't generate power, right. but batteries store it. So, so the power to charge the battery has to come from somewhere. And it's almost like people don't understand that. They believe the battery is the power source. The battery is the storage for the power source. The gas makes the car go. The gas tank holds the gas so it can make its way to the internal combustion engine and, and turn the uh, drive shaft and, or the drivetrain to turn the drive shaft and turn the, the axle to get you down the road. I mean, that's the way it works. So the battery does not charge. I mean, the battery doesn't power anything. The battery stores the power necessary to drive a Tesla or a, what is a new Ford pickup? Lightning or whatever. And GM's got their new uh, version of electric vehicle. Um, we'll get there one day if we choose. But the government's hell-bent on making us get there faster than market forces consider to be practical and um, and affordable. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, the oldest millennials are in their early 40s, and the youngest are entering their late 20s. So Roger said that a lot of millennials were shut out of the housing market during, I, I guess you'd call it this last buying frenzy. But following the 08 debacle, their financial debacle, there hasn't, there's been a lack of homes built. So this is in a sense, shut, we've shut out the millennials from the housing market and, almost, and maybe for good at this point. So can we just rename the millennial generation the left behind generation? Well, we're sticking um, with all that debt. I mean, you got to deal with all that debt that the boomers are leaving you with. I, I mean, it makes me think of that that tweet from the World Economic Forum where they said in 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy about it. I mean, I mean is, is, are they putting that on the millennial generation? I mean, it, I mean, I just think about all, all the things as far as um, that, that we've dealt with in our generation um, that has just constantly put us behind, put us behind. There is a reason why millennials are waiting to get married, waiting to have children. Um, it, it's financial. I mean, if, if everything with the millennial generation was financially going well, we wouldn't be waiting till 30 to have kids, 35 in some degree. You know, and, and doing all these things, we we would be doing them the same time that boomers were doing them. 
Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, you know, I don't. I mean, when you think about millennials, think about this, guys. I mean, I, I lived most of my life. I mean, at Vietnam, I mean, as a, as a young kid, I remember Vietnam. I mean, I was a kid. I was born in 63. Vietnam was in the late 60s. I mean, I, I've, t- I've said this before with the air. I mean, as a kid watching the news with your father, you you just know you're destined or doomed to die in that jungle. Because you know, you know comprehension of the world. I mean, you have no understanding of politics or geopolitics or, or foreign affairs. I mean, I, I know nothing about that. I just hear that, you know, 19-year-olds die in that jungle. So, so as an eight or nine year old kid, I mean, you don't ask your dad about it because you don't, you're not that aware of it. I mean, you're a kid, you're seven or eight or nine, you're riding your bike and your truck and all this, but you sit down with your, with your father and you eat, you you sit and talk about the life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And Dan Rather is in a hole in a jungle somewhere. And they're talking about 19 year old after 19 year after 19 year old American are dying. So that's the only moment in my life that I felt at risk. And once again, I had no clue because I'm not old enough to understand kind of what makes the world go around to the world around me. But but after Vietnam, I don't remember being being fear. I don't I don't remember being threatened. I don't remember things not being in my favor. I mean, I, I'm an American male. I mean, I'm as privileged as anybody in the history of mankind. So so after I mean, when I grew up and understood, okay, every kid doesn't die in that jungle. I mean, there was nothing to be afraid of. It was it was a um it was an optimistic future after an optimistic future after an optimistic future. Um, juxtapose that with millennials, and think about how the world changed on 9/11. I mean, 21 years ago, the world completely and totally changed. So 9/11 in 2001, and then the financial fiasco of 2006, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and then we have a pandemic. So we've had three once in a hundred year events in a span of about 20 years. And the millennials have been adversely impacted or affected by this. There is no doubt about it. And I get real bothered when I hear boomers talk about how lousy and no count these young kids are. You know, these millennials and these Gen Xers and Gen Y. Uh, no, I mean, we, we've been probably the most gluttonous generation of the history of mankind. And, you know, we, we all want that Social Security and that Medicare and all these government benefits. And, you know, really? And who pays for it? You know, I don't want my taxes raised, but and I'm not I'm not defending government. Please understand, this is more socially than it is politically. But but as a well, once again, as a baby boomer, and I'm technically the last of the baby boomers, the only time I was ever concerned about my future was was a little bit selfish in me dying in that jungle in Vietnam, and then I had a run. I mean, I had a big run of of you know peace and prosperity. But but if you're a millennial, your life is being shaped your, your political and economic world has been um made different by things you didn't have any control over you know the the homeland security the national security budget i mean the 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 thought of islamic terrorism and then after that we self-inflict all of these you know um the the, the greed of wall street or the greed of home or you know, the subprime lending and the big short made a movie about it i mean most of you or a lot of you have seen that and then you have a pandemic you know something we never seen before so we had a we had a, an attack on American American soil. That's a once in a hundred year event. We had a um, a financial meltdown once in a hundred year event, and we had a pandemic, a global pandemic, where the government basically redefined what normal is in our economy. So so the millennial has had I mean they've had multiple events in their life that have shaped their psyche, shaped their belief in America, shaped their opinions 
about politics shape their opinions about what makes the world go around. So, yeah, I mean, I, I get it, Jim. I hear you. And I do. I mean, I'm not apologizing for it because that doesn't mean anything. But, but I do agree that that generation has seen a lot more controversy to be concerned about than my generation ever did. Um, whose fault is that? You know, I mean, I think you can lay the blame of, um, I mean, obviously, when the World Trade Center's collapse, I mean, that's not America's fault, right? I mean, I, you, I'd say, I can hear Sam now saying, oh, well, some degree, you know, American imperialism and the exporting of democracy and the attempt to do, you know, to get everybody else to play by the same rules or live under the same conditions and governing philosophy as America. But, but I think American imperialism is post 9-11. I mean, it was the imposing of these views, the imposing of these values. The Bush-Cheney doctrine will be forever remembered as far as I'm concerned. We're going to export democracy whether they want it or not. We're going to Americanize certain parts of the world whether they want it or not. We learned the hard way. You can't do that. You can't dictate cultures and conditions of life on other countries that are so entrenched in their you know, you know, ancestry or the historical way of, of conducting themselves in Sharia law and Islamic and, you know, the Muslim faith. I mean, a lot of things there we should have known better, but we tried it anyway. And James Baker said, you know, we'll pay for it with the oil well. And Bush said they'll welcome us with open arms. We'll be liberators and uh, democracy heroes. And, you know, you won't believe how many Starbucks will be in Baghdad before it's all said and done. And Afghanistan will have a Walmart on every street corner. How, how's that working out for us? So I think we've made critical mistakes in our judgment and i do think the millennials have been most significantly impacted by those significant mistakes we've made in judgment and you know to, to me the mistake after 9-11 was the insistence of american imperialism I, I think the mistake after 2006 7 8 with the housing or the financial disaster or the financial meltdown was zero percent interest rates and uh, you know we're st- kind of still dealing with that um because we never stopped quantitative easing we never stopped keeping interest rates at very 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 historically low levels and i think we've we, we've kind of lived a decade and a half of make-believe you know in la la land and, and i do think the millennial have been in their formative years you know in their their i don't know rev the years you make the most money or the years you try to ratchet up your income and, and work through upward mobility in the in the workplace I and mean, we've heard a lot about that but i think the millennial had to keep an eye on not only where they were trying to get in life but, but how the world around them was performing. And, and I just don't remember as a young person, maybe I'm naive, maybe I was oblivious, maybe I was disconnected, didn't register to vote, I was 40, so maybe some of that's an attribute to, to my credit. You know, I, didn't, I didn't know it, so I didn't worry about it. Had I known some of these things, I probably would have worried about them. Um, I was not inundated with 24-hour news. I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have Twitter. I didn't have you know the Internet. I mean, I couldn't get an opinion from anybody in the world or uh, who said this? Um, can I say this on the ARF? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it. If you have to bleep it, bleep it. Um, before the internet, um, when not every ass crack in America could have an opinion and a million people hear it. I mean, I've heard that uh, fr- from one of the musical stars. I mean, he talks about when every oh, yeah. butt crack, you know, uh, could give an opinion, have a podcast or a, a blog or a website, and everybody had to listen to what this guy has to say. So, no, I mean, I think the millennials have lived a very complicated formative years, extremely complicated formative years. And I think it began on 9-11. I mean, that, that was a major moment in world history that, that redefined the American experience. I mean, th- th- there were certain things done 
Nobody ever imagined you'd have to take your shoes off to get on an airplane or take a, you know, take your belt off to get on an airplane, but we did. So, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not apologizing because I don't think it's my fault, but, but I think the millennials have lived a very complicated existence, not of their own making, but caught up in certain economic and political circumstances that they kind of had to live with. Let's go to the phone. Ed in Bennettsville. Good morning, Ed. Morning. I want to get back to uh, talking about the water situation out west. There are uh, companies, Saudi Arabian companies, <clears throat> of course, they have the technology to do everything in the desert, but they are drilling. They got farms out in the middle of the desert out in Arizona and New Mexico that they managed to drill thousands of feet down into their main aquifers for the water source. And they have razor wire fences and armed guards, and you, you sooner sneak onto an Air Force base than you can onto them farms. They say they're protecting their technology, but I just can't help but think that's a, a big strain on the water situation, which is already, you know, perilous. Yeah, there's a – I remember – thank you, appreciate the call. I remember my time as a candidate for lieutenant governor – Henry McMaster was a candidate for governor, the AG, and he was talking about these cases, these precedents of water. You know, who does this water belong to? Who legally has access to this water? And it was a lot of states' rights issues, Georgia and South Carolina arguing over access to certain water and aquifers and streams and rivers and, and you know, God's abundant resource. Um, it's even more competitive out west, I would imagine. Um, that there, I mean, I've read books. I, I say books. I've read a book and read articles about, you know, the battle for water will eventually replace the battle for oil. There will be a day that we have an economy run by renewables. Oil won't be as in demand, but water will because we need water to stay alive. I mean, the human body can't sustain itself without water. And there's going to be a lot of battles here, there, and yonder over, you know, whose water is this? Who has legal access to this water? Um, who has to sue who to find out, you know, can we get this water? Is this water uh, belong to us? Um, and you get out west, and, and I've, I've not been out west. Never been. I went to Vail, Colorado years and years and years ago on one of these fancy-schmancy skiing trips. Um, but my, my the, the friends of mine who have gone out there who grew up like I did, you know, looking around, kind of making notes, mental notes, everybody comes back and says, ain't no water out there, man. But I mean, there's just not any water out there to be found. And um, and these are, uh, you know, kind of observe. You know my friendships. I mean, you know the people I'm talking about. They're, they're observant, and they pay attention, mm-hmm. and they come back and then, then to a person. They always say, hey, man, there's no water out there. there there's just not much water. Um, and, you know, the Mead River, I mean, if, if, if we're reading some of the data, and this is government data. I mean, if you look at rainfall, if you look at um, the natural flow of the Colorado River, if you look at some of the um the 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 river basin snowpack and melting, there there's just not any noticeable difference. I mean, it's yet about the, where it's the always water been. Dropping yeah, the, the water lake. level is um at record lows, and there's this popular narrative that says it's all about climate change and extreme weather. Well, it's not, because the snowpacks are about like the snowpacks have always been. The river flow is about like the river flow has always been, and the average rainfall is about what the average rainfall has always been. But when you take more out of that river or out of that lake than you um, can replace, you're going to have a you know a dropping water level. So um yeah, I mean that water will be a very very complicated issue in certain places in America. Probably already is. We're just not as aware or tuned in because we live in a place right now that appears to have plenty of water for its people. Take a break. 
Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to say again, the Trafalgar National Number came out. Generic Republican, generic Democrat. The Republicans have never had this big a lead in a generic matchup. Now, now once again, some of the mainstream pollsters will argue that Kahaley is a Republican pollster. I don't buy that. I simply do not buy that. I think he is a, a different sort of pollster. I think his methodology is unique to what the normal pollsters do. Um, but but I, I just don't buy that he is a Republican pollster. Sure, he works for Republicans when they pay money, but the majority of his polling and data is for people who need to know where the country's head is. Where Who's going to be in control of Senate? Who's going to be in the control of Congress? I mean, political parties and campaigns want to know, how can, hey, can you give me a poll that breathes some life into my campaign? Said, so can you go out and, and extract some positive information that gets people convinced that I can win this race? I mean, they'll do that. All polling companies will do that. But but a lot of Roberts polling, the majority of Trafalgar's polling is people that want to know, what am I facing? What am I dealing with come next January? As a business, am I dealing with a Democrat leadership or a Republican leadership? And right now, the Republicans are at 51.3, Democrats at 45.6, undecideds 3.1. Let's go to the phone. Bill and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, there's something about this water thing out west. There's something that nobody's really paying attention to. Back in the 90s, they did a study on the underground water in the, in the, in the west, uh, west and southwest. I lived in Arizona for 12 years. Um, and the underground studies showed that there are actual flowing rivers underneath the state. The problem is they're so deep and that uh, the nuclear power plants out there own the rights to all these waters. As cooling for the, uh, for the reactors. Right, exactly. Yeah, I've read some of that. You know, it is so cost prohibitive to extract the water. I mean, it, there's an abundance of water. It's just so deep, and if you drill, it's going to cost so much money. And then you run into some of these permitting or legal issues that some of the nuclear reactor power generating stations or, or, or plants out there um, use that as part of their cooling. Right, right, and yeah, that's. I guess that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, and. And I, I guess if they if they're going to build dams to dam up a river, why don't you just drill a big ass hole? Eight four three six six one zero nine. To put it eloquently, uh, yeah, as eloquently as we do, we've made people real comfortable, haven't we? It's right in. Yeah, I mean, we're, it's almost like we're riding in the pickup together. And I mean, as I said, I mean, I got buddies of mine who are highly educated, but they'll come back from the west and say, "Ain't no water out there, man." I mean, they, these are these are lawyers and doctors and, and you know business people, and they're much more educated and bright than I am. But I'll say, hey, man, did you have fun on your trip? Yeah. Because uh, I know these people, and they're very perceptive. I mean, they, they see things. They pay attention to things. And every one of those people come back and say, ain't no water out there. I mean, it's just hard to find. You know, it, it looks to me like at some point in time, if that place becomes even more populated, and it's sparsely populated. The majority of these states are not. I mean, Arizona's got some population. What, Phoenix and uh, Scottsdale, there's a couple of metropolitan areas in, in Arizona. The majority has been in California. I mean, Las Vegas, obviously, is a big happening place. Winslow's a big city yeah, in Arizona. Yeah, well, it's a big city. It's across <laughs> it's a corner, isn't it? At least yeah, a corner. At least, at least one statue, corner. I think, with, yeah. a, with a statue of recognition. Yeah. But um, but all, the population is all about California. I guess to some degree, Oregon. I mean, Portland is a metropolitan area, but that would be the northwest. I mean, that's not really the west. The majority is driven by California and Las Vegas. And... um. And the more people that move to California, now, now, you know, there's a big debate about whether people are moving into into California. It's it's almost like 
God took that state and said, I'm going to give you more abundant natural resources than anywhere on the planet. You can't goof this up. But I, I think God underestimated Democrats. I mean, I don't think God misses much. I think he's got about everything right. But I do think God in heaven misestimated or, or mis, misinterpreted what damage Democrats could do <laughs> if given enough time and, um, and potential votes. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.